This isn't my first Super House gathering, but it's probably going to be the only one I remember. Welcome to episode 84 of the Super House Podcast, everybody. I'm once again joined by Maddie. Hello. Stefan. That's me. And this week... We have another amazing guest. He is an award, Emmy Award-winning practical effects artist named Joe Caldwell. He loves comics and superheroes and horror movies and has an interest in the history of cinema as well. He has done special effects makeup for over 20 years for films such as Star Trek First Contact, Batman Returns, Last Action Hero, Super Mario Brothers, Robin Hood Men in Tights, Mortal Kombat, Men in Black, The Conjuring 2, and Outcast, just to name a few. He has been a painter, sculptor, foam runner, a lab technician, and a puppeteer throughout his career. I have worked with him for a few months now, and I feel he really doesn't, he really does have a lot of passion for what he does. So I just want to say, welcome to Superhouse, Joe. Thank you. Hi, everybody. <laughs> it's uh, Joe Caldwell. It's nice and sunny in this overcast apartment. <laughs> Things are good. Things are very good. How is everybody today? Good. Oh, good. So good starting off asking us a question Better yeah well it sounds like you did a lot of research really <laughs> that sounds interesting IMDb. yeah it does read very imdb ish said nothing about my squirrels club account membership it's nothing about everywhere. the soup kitchen volunteer work that i used to do none of that none of that well you know <laughs> I go to my linkedin too. page for that <laughs> so this time we wanted we always switch it up every time we record a fucking episode or at least we try to so um Actually, Stefan's going to start us off with the line of questioning, if you don't mind, Joe. Sure, please. Go ahead. So uh, uh, start, start us off uh, there, Stefan. All right. Sounds good. Thanks. Um, <laughs> so first question, this, it, it's written kind of like an interrogation. Sorry. Is, um, what is your name and what do you do for a living? Who is My your name. daddy and what does he do? <laughs> My name is Klaus and I am a god at the front. Uh, <laughs> uh, my name's Joe Caldwell. I am going through a uh, crisis of conscience at this point in my life. Uh, mostly, uh, I have somehow managed to fool the man into letting me have a career of making artwork and creepy weird things for uh, the last 30 years. And I actually started as a uh, young addict at, uh, at nine, nine years old is when I first started applying makeup and stuff because uh, I thought monsters and fantasy creatures and characters and stuff, I thought they were really cool. Uh, was a bit of a disenchantment when I found out that they weren't real. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of a drag. I'm never going to become a werewolf, Papa. <laughs> and uh, But I always had the fallback of radioactive spider, good things and ceiling kind of a thing. But yeah. uh, I was uh, fortunate enough to not have the internet, which means that I had to work very, very hard and I had to go through the back catalogs of magazines and go to libraries and look up microfiche. I oh. do not recommend it. Wow. <laughs> uh, I'm from Indiana originally, which means, as, uh, as you fellows fully well know, just a hotbed of film activity and just uh, <laughs> no shortage of people that uh, thought I was gay for wanting to make masks <laughs> and to, to stymie me at every information. Um, it was a lot of playing around. Uh, fortunately, one of the things I, I, I did have is I had a lot of art supplies when I was a kid because my, my folks were good about encouraging that. Nice. So I was able to supplement whatever makeup supplies I couldn't steal from my mom and my aunts uh, with using watercolor palettes and, and 
like cornstarch and stuff like that. You can powder your face down with white cornstarch and use a watercolor mm -hmm. palette to paint yourself into a vampire or perhaps oh. a phantom of the opera. Because <laughs> there's nothing more intrinsically frightening than a nine-year-old phantom of the opera uh -huh. jumping out at you, screaming about his face, his face. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm the phantom. You look like Peter Lorre. <laughs> and then uh, that eventually would segue into we used to have these great products it was uh this company called imagineering and they used to sell uh dracula blood in a little cool. container and you probably see you can still see it around it was like dracula blood 39 cents and they made scar stuff which was a, a mortician's wax compound and with those those two elements you could do any number of you know cuts and wounds and scars and dress them up with blood and my big kick at the time was taking whatever sharp object i could find fishing hooks or you know, pins, needles, whatever, and, and doing them into a wax wound and then covering myself up with blood and run screaming into the middle of a family reunion <laughs> just to get attention. Yes. You know, because they weren't paying attention for the obvious child abuse that was going on at home. So I was like, well, if I, you know, if I fake a significant injury, then maybe my aunt will pay attention and call an authority figure. That's that's brilliant, man. Did, did I answer your question? I think I'm rambling. Damn you I and your beer. I think, oh, I think you answered reason. a lot of questions, actually. You, <laughs> you, said, <laughs> you said you grew up in Indiana. What was it like uh, developing your interest in this kind of thing in a place, like you said, so like, like active in the film industry? I never felt like I belonged. Yeah. I, uh, I never felt like I belonged in Indiana. I always felt as if that there was something else, uh, you know, the loftier thing would be some manifest destiny, but it was just an impression, you know, particularly when I found out when my father clued me into the fact that these films were made in Hollywood, California, that sort of became, you know, a vision quest. And then the more study that went into it, it was an actual place and it was some place that you, you could get to. And clearly, you know, in, in my case, it was a, it was a circuitous route to, to eventually, you know, get out here. Mm -hmm. But it was a lot of effort. Um, I would just try and get jobs. I would just wherever I could. If I heard somebody was doing something, there were there were uh, occasional movies that would be filmed in Indianapolis. Mm -hmm. You know, like Eight Men Out and Push mm -hmm. Too Far and Hoosiers, and uh -huh. and I did extra work in, in a lot of that stuff. Okay. And I would bring my little you know my little amateur portfolio to set in the hopes that you know find out which one's the you know which honey wagon. First of all, finding out what a honey wagon is. <laughs> There's no honey in there. Whoever. <laughs> 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 and, uh, and, you know, finding the honey wagon where the makeup department is and you know, like trying to, you know, tell them this little chubby faced kid from from Indianapolis was looking for a job. And eventually a friend of a friend of a friend suggested uh, suggested me to uh, local DJs, Bob and Tom. They had just started to do a, a television program on what was the the early Fox channel back in Indianapolis. Oh. And it was called WPDS Indianapolis. Mm -hmm literally said really? like that yeah 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 yeah. so they put uh, a version of their very popular morning morning dj show they put it on a saturday night kind of thing and they wanted to go a little little body with it and they found out i did masks so i did a shithead mask uh you'll probably bleep that out i don't know if you cuss on this no we, we cuss a shitload <laughs> oh fuck <laughs> thank god <laughs> only thank only god. when necessary like a longshoreman he is over here <clears throat> And uh, I did a shithead mask, which was just basically a sculpture of a pile of poo. And then uh, I did a, I did a 400 pound white rat costume, and you know I got to take those on there and suit up performers and stuff. But still, you know, at 14, it, it was a professional credit. 
And it was one of those things where it was really hard to piece together a career, but it was mostly through word of mouth. And Indiana was small enough that those kind of things could happen. So I would go from <clears throat> assisting on any makeup uh, or on any show that would, would come in doing the occasional gag. I would do print work. I would do commercial work. Uh, sometimes when I would do uh, little puppets and things like that, I would, I would do the voices because it was a huge Muppets fan, big Jim mm-hmm. Henson you know, devotee since I was a little kid. And so I started to actually get some some voiceover work. So there were so both in Indiana and eventually when I moved to Florida for a short period of time, I was actually able to get a career doing some some voiceover, just little dubs, kids voices, teenage voices, the occasional, you know, uh, welcome to KFLA, you know, just (laughs) just the occasional little mic drop kind of a thing. And the whole time trying to cultivate and, and just practicing my makeup over and over and over again. Awesome. Nice. And, uh, we're going to kind of uh, go all over the place here as far as the timeline is concerned. But sure. Um, what did you win the Emmy for? I won the Emmy with, uh, with, uh, with a group of crazy kids for, <laughs> at uh, Steve Johnson's XFX. And what we won for was the miniseries of Stephen King's The Shining. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. Which cool. took place over, cool. over multiple nights. I love that. Uh, Stephen Weber. Special. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was uh, with Steven Weber and Rebecca De Mornay and uh, I'm going to uh, Mario Van, or Melvin Van Peebles. Mario yeah, Van yeah, Peebles. Yeah. Dad. That cat was cool to me. Was he really? He was a lot of fun, you know, because he was a director back in back in the day. I mean, Sweet Sweetback's badass song. So it was really cool meeting him. And he really got turned on by the fact that, that we you know, that I knew who he was. But I think that's anytime anyone from the old garden, I'm certainly appreciating that as I get old, <laughs> appreciates it when anyone's heard of Right, uh, and, right. and can recall what you what you were doing or what you're most you know most noted for for being a contemporary. Collect these interesting soulful characters, much like when I worked with Samuel L. Jackson. It was it was very close to tears. It was a grown man. Like, it's so good to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> I met Melvin Van Peebles. You know, just try to use that cred to the nth degree. Right. But yeah, we were working on. Stephen King's uh, miniseries, and I went there with with Steve and Joel Harlow, and we had a full makeup crew. It was basically department headed by uh, Academy Award winner Bill Corso, and V. Neal, who's also an Academy Award winner, and you know did Beetlejuice back in the day. And, nice. Uh, Barry Coper, uh, Steve Johnson, of course, uh, Academy Award winner Joel Harlow. So when you see a picture of us all at the Emmy Awards, you can tell which one I am because I'm the one that's not famous. That no one knows, <laughs> but uh, yeah, we we went up there and <clears throat> ostensibly it was to just service the makeup effects for it. But Mick Garris really wanted to to broaden the vision of the amount of of ghosts and dead that were in the ballroom scenes. <clears throat> and this is always the case in filmmaking: are are twenty vampires enough, or two thousand too many? Uh, it's a you know twenty twenty vampires or twenty zombies or twenty ghosts in a room. Uh, doesn't take up very much space and it doesn't look very cinematically interesting. So right. he's, they started having open, open cattle calls. They started having more and more locals come up. We shot in Estes Park, Colorado, which was the actual motel that Stephen King had stayed in oh, shit. when he came up with the idea for The Shining. And just so you know, no ghosts. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Joel, Joel Harlow and I, we went to the famous room, you know, 217. Uh, we found out which room it is because they switched the na- they switched the numbers on them so that people don't know what room it is. Oh, wow. Right? It's a little you know kind of That's an in joke sort of thing. 
It's the Stanley Hotel out here. The Stanley at Estes Park, yeah. and a really nice hotel. And we would we would go to the, the the conservatory room. We would hang outside that room with our little mini you know mini micro cassette recorders at two, three, four o'clock in the morning because we were shooting <laughs> nights, and we never experienced anything. But we really wanted to. That was just something that Joel and I used to do when we would go on location together. We would go out of our way to try and find the haunted house or the haunted hospital or whatever, and just you know to go and and have an experience. And uh, gotta find a medium. Got to find a medium or an extra large, you know, just some, <laughs> some room for those spirits. Um, I see. But it was, a, it was a lot of fun, you know. It was, a, it was a lot of fun. I got to meet Stephen King. I got to put my hand down Stephen King's pants. That's right, really? kids. There you go. That's, uh, that's oh, for you. Do go on. So we're getting into the porn career now. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Stephen, uh, Mr. King, had, had worked with Steve Johnson and worked with Joel Harlow before on The Stand. Uh, the, oh, yeah. the TV miniseries version of that, right? So they were old friends, and Joel and Joe King, Stephen's son, were really good friends. They're still quite good friends to this day. And Joel was doing an effect on Stephen, who played the uh, the band leader. And it was an effect yeah. in which, uh, the, during the scene, his skin would start to bubble and fester and rot and just sort of liquefact and fall off of his face and leave a grinning skull. And it was a very clever effect. You know, it was a skull-like appliance with a foam latex rotted skin appliance over the top of it. And then we made a water soluble compound that we actually spatulated into all the holes on the face, dried that and airbrushed makeup over the top of it. So if he didn't move his mouth, if he didn't make too many expressions, he just sort of looked like he had a dead face there. But as soon as we started pumping the slime and the fluid behind it, it would wash away the paste and it would look like his skin was just turning to goo and rotting off. So as a result, you had about 20 tubes that had to be coursed down his band leader pants. And while they, they wanted to completely hog Stephen King to themselves, when it came time to snaking him down his pants, they pushed out. <laughs> so they look around and they see old Muggins over here and they're like, hey, you probably want to course some cables down uh, Stephen King's pants. And I got next to Stephen's King and it was. Stephen. And uh, I'm down there and and uh, I'm just kind of doing this. And he stopped in a moment because who wouldn't? He was you know, caught in the middle of a conversation. Then he clicked into what was you know happening you look down and goes you all right there and i was like i was gonna ask you for an autograph but in lieu of this i i'm good how are you sir how, how are you sir you're a manly man but we went we went through that experience and then we ended up doing a lot more of the the specialty character makeups uh because it was just the the, the numbers were just a lot for bill and his crew to deal with and we pulled together as a group and uh we got paid back with our hard work and dedication with uh, with an Emmy Award. So, 1997. Do you have the actual statue at your place? Yes, I do. Damn. I didn't bring it with me, though. I'll send you a picture. I, you, you know, he's a humble guy, everybody. I had no idea you won an Emmy until I looked at your IMDb. I was like, oh, shit. Joe's huh? got a fucking Emmy. Oh, shit. Which I'm, I'm proud of that. I'm, I'm more proud of an award that I got nominated for that I didn't get was the, uh, the do you remember the Cable Ace Awards? Yes. They yeah. were a badass award. I mean, uh -huh. it was really nice looking, you know, it was oh, just yeah. a, a, a silver spade or a chrome spade onto it. And it was the Ace Award. And I got nominated for one of those and didn't win, but that was the award that I really wanted just for aesthetic purposes. You know, they, they got rid of the award, so that shows you how valuable the Ace Award right, was in right, terms right. of TV, but it was badass. It looked good. What'd you win for that? Oh, it was uh, for an episode of Outer Limits. I did oh, yeah, yeah, five yeah. years Five years of Outer Limits. I was pretty much in, in Vancouver for, for almost five years at a stretch. I'd done Outer Limits, Poltergeist, The Legacy, and then laterally mm. was working on Stargate, 
the television series. Did, did a lot of work in Canada. Shot Slither in Canada. I did. I did. Yes. Oh, God. What a great fucking movie. Yes. <laughs> I'm glad you guys like it. Yeah. I got the I got the very slither. last. <laughs> I got the very last shot. If you if you got the gumption to stay all the way through the movie and all the way through the end credits, there's that very last little sequence. I don't know if you've seen it where. Oh, my God. The, I don't his, think I've ever seen this. You haven't seen it? I don't think I've seen oh. this bit. Oh, man. Okay. It involves a cat and an organ. Okay. I don't want to spoil it for you. You guys haven't seen it. Okay. So that'll be it, the little thing. But ha ha, you got homework, fuckers. And uh, <laughs> and I get the very I get the very last shot in the movie, which it didn't work out that way. But know that when you see that sequence, and this shows you what a brilliant writer director James Gunn is, that he came up with this. This wasn't in the original script. This is something he came up with off the fly and came back and asked me and, and Dan Rebert if we could do it. And I created that entire effect, just kind of fabricated it in the lockup on set. Like awesome. in an hour or something like that. So when you see it, know that that's an hour's worth of hard work that got the very last Fuck. shot I'm looking, movie. I'm looking nice. at this. <laughs> I have not seen that. I got to get that collector's edition that just dropped a couple weeks ago or whatever. So yes, I still got to see that one. Um, it was an interesting. It was an interesting shoot. Um, I'm, so many people really, really love it. It, it was a. It was a hard shoot. Um, I basically there is. You know, towards the finale and the end of the picture where Grant is sitting in uh, like a human pudding filled with like melded bodies and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Right. And he's facing. Uh, oh, God. What's Elizabeth's last name? Elizabeth. Uh, thanks. Yeah. So I built the big pudding that he's sitting in. Oh, shit. <laughs> and built some other effects. And then there's a there's a merging effect where a great big fat guy walks up to a, a blob of Grant material that's broken. Oh, through yeah. The, uh, the yeah. That's that's my gag, too. Oh, nice. sweet. So. Dude. That movie's fucking wonderful, man. Yeah, <laughs> just like, I, like, I just like, I, did, did we watch that in college? Maybe. Yeah. Did we all watch uh, that? Or I was didn't it see after? It until Chicago, yeah. Oh, maybe it was Chicago. I just watched that end effect scene. That is amazing. <laughs> I'm glad awesome. you liked it. Yeah. Good job. Thank you. Yeah, that was my dog. She said good job. Thank you, puppy. Stefan, I'll, I'll hand it over again to you in a second, but I wanted to ask one more question about the shine. Sure thing. So what what was on? It must. I mean, I know you're not part of the writing process as an effects artist, but the overall vibe of of going into that that series. What they feel that Kubrick fucked up the most was it any one thing or just kind of a general Denver well, croquet? Never, close. It <laughs> can never be. It can never be wholly one thing in and of itself. Why did Why did these things happen? I don't know. It's it's whim. It's fate. It's tangent. Strangeness. Um, in this instance, what I kept hearing over and over again from Stephen and overhearing in conversations, and I don't know that I'm necessarily speaking out of school, but it was the topiary animals. Okay. He was really miffed about the fact that they're in the book. He wrote those sequences about yeah. the topiary animals attacking in the books. And Kubrick didn't want to do it because he thought it was stupid, that it was dumb. Okay. And, and thought it was pointless and, and was detracting from the story that he wanted to tell, which... As we know, when you look at the Kubrick version, it's a little bit of Shining, and it's yeah. a lot of bit of Stanley Kubrick oh, just yeah. trying to tell a good oh, story. Yeah. Mm. But that was one of the things, take it as you will, that Stanley Kubrick, the filmmaker, opted that he didn't want to do. He felt that that would cheapen or lessen the effect and make it look cartoonish. And that was one of the things that Stephen wanted to do. Right. And uh, and Mick Garris who directed it, and he and Mick goes back, and Steve is a huge exponent, or was the you know the hugest exponent of Mick Garris directing his his book stuff until uh, uh, Frank uh, Frank Darabont came along. 
So that's what we kept hearing over and over and over again. We put a lot of effort into it. And as a matter of fact, there was two shops working on that topiary stuff. We did, uh, we did a few gags at Steve Johnson's and Todd masters was also concurrently building full puppets and things for that sequence. There was a lot of time spent on it. There was a lot of effort spent onto it. And ostensibly that was the reason why. Well, that's not technically makeup. So we would, we wouldn't have benefited from that. Those were those are just puppets, or they probably would have been opted off as any one of the number of VFX that would have been done on that show. The matte paintings and the cleanup and the other process stuff, the, the simulated storms, you know. Those, you want to ask Maddie? Oh, I was just going to say those parts in the books are like pretty creepy. You yeah. Know, like when you when you if you read The Shining, you're just like, oh my god, this is fucking like, why didn't Kubrick put this in? But like you yeah. said, it's a little bit Stephen King, a lot of Kubrick in the in his version of The Shining. Which, well, the I like croquet version, so I, I do too. But it's the the croquet mallet is key, yeah. Oh you yeah, know? I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it, <laughs> this is somebody beating you to death with ostensibly what's a yard toy, and the and yeah. what they would have to do to put the effort to put into it. that's like that's like cutting a person's heart out using a bread knife. You know, it's like yeah. you got to be pretty fucking determined and have a lot of time <laughs> on your hands. The axe is a more immediate knee jerk reaction. When you see an axe, people just, oh, I can imagine that being buried in my face. And that, that just yeah. seems horrible. So I think that was a, a shortcut to, to horror. I think there are things that are implicit in the writing of Stephen King, which have to do with a personable, a personal experience or a personable experience as he's writing it. Just the horror of the mundane. You know, it's, it's a book of matches on your coffee table, but putting a spin onto it. What if there were an evil spirit trapped in that book of matches? And it's, it's trying to push that amount of horror and really, which I think is the more active, a bit of imagination, finding horror where you least expect it. And, and but again, that's, that's Stanley Kubrick going, eh, it's kind of silly. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it looks like a big cartoon hammer, you know. It's not that Kubrick didn't speak like that, did he? Like no, a southern character. That's your Kubrick impression. That's <laughs> the Kubrick I've heard ever. Yeah. Yeah. Like a perfect 30 IQ or some shit. Let me, let me take that full metal jacket. Bam! <laughs> wow. I worked on that very hard. Thank you. Oh, that's a good one, man. <clears throat> that's Thanks. the best one I've ever heard. <laughs> you got the next one, Stevan. Oh, sure. Uh, uh, what kind of stuff uh, influenced you as a kid? What kind of movies did you like? and Or th- heroes and stuff, like things that stuck out. So much gay porn. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, when I was a young lad. After my own heart over here. Uh, okay, so yeah, the universal universal monster stuff, but uh, I was fortunate enough to have a, a horror host, which is, you know, we know who Sven Gulli is now, but there were a profundity of these guys in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And my horror host for the longest time was, was Sammy Terry, you know, like Cemetery, get it? Wink, oh, wink, nice. nudge, nudge. And Sammy uh, was very cool in the in the the bumpers when he would come into it. He would usually read some dark poetry, some Poe or something like or, or something in the manner that that he wrote himself. And he was an, an, an on air guy who had a voice that was sort of like this. <laughs> Bob Carter, who unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago. But uh, he was really good about. Uh, showing the shock package of movies he was really good about showing the the universal classics and then he was really up on showing the you know horror films and science fiction stuff from the 1960s now more directly that i could relate to at the time as being a kid of the you know a very small child in the 70s was uh, 70s tv horror 
that was a huge influence on me and continues to be a huge influence to this day. You know, uh, Darren McGavin and the, the Night Stalker, which oh, as a television pilot, it was one of the most successful television pilots up to up to that time for for he and Dan Curtis. Uh, Dan Curtis also it was a lot of Dan Curtis, like Burt Offerings, uh, Trilogy of Terror with, uh, you know, uh, uh, Karen Black. If you've ever seen that with the, the Zuni fetish doll. Uh, oh yeah, it's so great. The, 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 I mean that that kind of stuff, and it happened all the time. There's this great Steven Spielberg horror film that's called Something Evil, uh, with with also has Darren McGavin in, it, and it's about this this couple that you know buy a uh, buy a farm out in you know in the country, and very quickly coming to realize that there you know there's something to do with Satan there, and there's like a pickled fetus crying in a jar, I mean, just this really Whoa. weird. The, it hit me at the time, and, and I'll tell you why I'm still interested now as an adult, because there was a feeling in the 70s of experimentation. There was a feeling of trying to create this waking, surreal nightmare and to put it into a context that people could appreciate. In the 70s, you also had like Gil Melly and a lot of a lot of composers that were using electronic scores cool. and really utilizing them to come up with interesting, you know, <laughs> you know yeah. which yeah. that goes back to the to the theremin. So it continues in, a, in that you know tradition. But if you look at like particularly like Night Gallery and Night Gallery, not a lot of people yeah. like because it's not nearly as good as, as the Twilight Zone. But you know what? I love it. Mm -hmm. Night Gallery is very good. You know, I mean, where else do you get? You know, hey, boys, there's some buried treasure under a tree. And these kids go out there and spend an entire day trying to dig this treasure up. And one by one, they get the shits of it and they leave. You know, they, they come to terms with their greed. And the last kid that's there, when he when he open, he digs down and realizes there's a door there, a door underneath the earth, underneath this tree. And then the door opens up and there's creepy John Carradine right there. If you haven't seen that episode, it's fucking bizarre. And to see it as a small kid, you know, because when, you know, when I saw the stuff as, as a child, I had no idea what this was. I had no idea what was real and kind of what, what was fake. It was just, it was on this box. It was on this electronic thing that we would watch the news on, you know? So for a while there, it was trying to filter out, okay, well, that didn't really happen. You know, that woman didn't really have a, you know, a, an enlarged puffer fish, you know, stuck to her chest, sucking out all of her blood. <laughs> time for the weather you know <laughs> so that was my big influence and now i uh since we don't ostensibly really have horror hosts anymore we got youtube and i love youtube i will go deep on the weekends and night at stuff and there's so much stuff there's a profundity of of made for tv horror and science fiction projects through that decade cool. and chance to look at any at any of that stuff it's it's great i mean you know uh, the norlis tapes uh there's a great pilot by gene roddenberry which was a which was a horror fantasy one called specter with robert culp and gig young as they as they travel to england to fight a coven of uh, witches and satan worshipers Fuck yeah <laughs> i mean you know just you know yeah, just just go to youtube and just type in 70s tv horror movies and uh, just just lose a couple of weekends there. There were there were some people that were trying to break out of uh, ostensibly using the studio system, but also trying to break out of that sort of storytelling that had gotten really baroque and and obtuse in the 1960s, yeah. you know. And in the 70s, it was just like, okay, we've embraced the weirdness. The weirdness is the norm now. Yeah. Let's just keep going with it. Awesome. It's incredible. Did you read TV Guide cover to cover? Because the other guys <laughs> I used to as a kid. 
That was, I guess everybody did that, huh? Yeah, well, because that's that's what we had. I mean, before you had cable and you were just dealing with, you know, the three networks and a couple of local networks, uh-huh. you would get that TV guide. And particularly as a kid, you had to stake your fucking ground out pretty good. Right, so right. I got I got very good at going in there and like, oh, Disney, you know, Sunday night, they're going to have the, the legend of the Sleepy Hollow or, you know, Kurt Russell is the world's strongest man. And, you know, over here, there's, you know, there's going to be, you know, uh, Kingdom of the Spiders. Oh, I got to make sure and watch that. Oh, Grizzly's <laughs> on Friday, you know. <laughs> It got to be fun. You would plot right. out your whole week. The only thing was, you know, really crappy is when your dad would come home and put the kibosh on him because, like, now we're watching this. Six hours of pigs being punched in the head with steel truncheons. Like, oh, this is. Why do we even have this as a program in Indianapolis? We don't... Why is this a thing? Because it's Indiana. Because it's Indiana, yeah. Should have been the uh, Indiana Corn Fun Time Hour. <laughs> oh man my uh, my dad my dad would show me a uh, night gallery and like cold check the night stalker when i was yeah. growing up because yeah. i'd be like dad x files is so good he's like well you need to check this out and yeah. we would just watch hours of that shit like as much as we could get our hands on and and, and i love night gallery <laughs> it's great right it's uh it's like yeah. hugely influenced on chris carter too so much of oh, yeah. that's why when he got the chance to work with Darren McGavin and brought Darren McGavin in, it was Darren McGavin who actually put the kibosh uh, because uh, Chris Carter wanted to make him Kolchak. Okay. He wanted to do as Kolchak. And and I've got mixed feelings on it to, to, Garen's, uh, to Darren's credit. He didn't want to do that because he wanted to pay faith and he wanted to pay homage to the character and he wanted this to be its, uh, its own thing. Uh, odd story about Darren McGavin girlfriend and short time suffering girlfriend uh one of her best friends from high school was darren mcgavin's live-in nurse towards the end of his life and i was constantly on her to try and get me to take uh, to take me over and to introduce me you know that would have been would have been huge and uh but he was he was too far gone by that point like he uh, just there was nothing there as she as she said and it was just so heartbreaking you know, when you sit and you and you watch those night stalkers, and that's the way to to appreciate them, you know, really best, more so than than the Christmas story. Uh, also, I mean, anything. He was really good. Uh, he was really good as Mike Hammer back in the day, but he's also a, a, you know exceptional in the Martian Chronicles. If you get a chance to see that in the '70s as well, Darren McGavin is great in that one. He was just a really good performer. You know, nice yeah. solid performance, someone that you could count on time and time again. That's the Bradbury Martian Chronicles? Yes, Ray That's Bradbury. That's where they try to uh, teach the gospel to a gaseous Martian being? Basically, yes, with Rock Hudson. <laughs> <God>. <laughs> That's right. We had Rock Hudson pushing forward our science fiction. Mr. Seconds himself. <laughs> I've actually, uh, yeah, I remember reading that, and they, they try to uh, create a gaseous form of yeah. Christ so that the yeah. uh, gaseous beings would have some sort of reference yeah as to uh <laughs> it's, it's it's terrible in a yeah. 70s kind of way they did the best they could but oddly enough between ghosts of mars and the martian chronicles i would still watch the martian chronicles uh-huh. uh that's just because sometimes i'm a little bit pissy with with john carpenter about these decisions he makes like he heard the 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 martians on that movie and i had friends who did the makeup on it and he heard uh, heard the martians with their teeth in trying to loop their you know just try and do their lines like i rock on my car you know that kind of a thing and he thought it's he thought it sounded so guttural and so organic and so real he left it in so rather than try and fully in some kind of alien sound which i think try something try anything yeah 
that's the one thing that kills me about that movie because as a professional, I'm like, I just hear a bunch of guys not being able to pronounce to a mouthful of veneers. That's what that sounds like. It's uh-huh. their teeth are a little loose, and, you know, they're going to slide out, and it doesn't sound like a language to me. Yeah. But that's that's Carpenter. He will occasionally he he's bound to determine to do something in one of his movies to piss me off, and I think it's personal. <laughs> <laughs> like, I really get you. I really enjoy I really enjoy Prince of Darkness. There's there's oh, a so lot, good. there's a lot to love about Prince of Darkness until you get to the makeup effect. And I should watch what I'm saying because I'm friends with the guy who did the makeup, <laughs> and it's nothing against his work. And I'm not going to call him out by name, but. That was ultimately a decision that, that that John made to go with, you know, to go with those makeup effects. And he did the same thing for, uh, you know, Prince of Darkness, but he did the same thing for, for They Live. And there's so many good ideas and so much fun stuff in both of those movies. But the one thing as a, as a makeup artist, I was like, that's that's what we went with. Right. That's what you uh, went with. You know? uh-huh. These and and don't get me wrong, those blue faced aliens are very stark and they're very interesting. Particularly that that la, you know that last shot at the end there, where the where the blonde is up on top, oh, right for dear life, yeah. yeah. And then she looks down like, "What's wrong, babe?" You know that's <laughs> that was pretty fucked up. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's just one of those things. Every now and again, he will just he will just put something in his movie that's just a little weird, just a, a hard conceit that doesn't really work. Yeah. Um, there, but then there's lots of things that I will give him a pass on. You know, Dark Star is really, really clever. His TV movie, This Is Elvis, you know, with with Kurt Russell. If you guys ever, uh, if you've ever seen that, that's a oh, great. Wow. Yeah, and that John Carpenter directing Kurt Russell as Elvis Presley. With, oh, with I've never that. seen it. I want I to. It. I want to so bad. Shelley Winters, <laughs> Shelley Winters as his mother. I mean, it's uh, it's to die for. You'll love it. Trust me. <laughs> so good. You know, and and I do enjoy I do enjoy you know Big Trouble in, in Little China, and I think to a certain yeah. degree it, it was definitely you know ahead of its time. But in, in terms of the rest of it, at that time you had Jackie Chan doing a lot of funny stuff over there in in, in China, and and a lot of funny action comedy type of things that he was trying to do. So yeah. it's we'll give it to John because John's ostensibly the first American to, to you know, want to present it in that format, but that's really paying a disservice to the film that was actually going on around the world, you know, in, in China and other places, but you know, whatever, it's just me. Oh yeah. That makes sense. I like it. I like it. I like like the staunchness uh, behind your, your, uh, you like your stance on things. (laughs) It's refreshing because people always hit me with like, Oh, don't be negative or whatever. I'm like, well, you have no eye for quality. (laughs) <laughs> yeah you're you're right but it's it's that thing that um, you know just because i express a thought or more specifically i put voice to a feeling or an impression i have it's yeah. it's not wrong yeah you're not wrong you're not and if you don't agree with what i say you're not wrong with wanting to disagree with me that's but that's everyone's opinion and that's how yeah. it's done but it's this thing like you know and i, I don't want to bring up necessarily the unpleasantness that's that's going on in uh north carolina yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, uh that was uh, just stunning, just just absolutely horrifying. I mean, when I saw when I saw that footage coming through, basically, and this is this is not meant as an insult to anybody, but it's you know yeah. I look at a picture and it's this twenty year old kid, it's this confused yeah. twenty year old kid that just tried to play Grand Theft Auto for real, and there's going to be some serious repercussions from that. I mean, I don't know if you guys have seen that footage, but it's yeah, it's, it's, it's fucking horrifying. You know, and again, to look there and see the damage and, and definitely some of that was from I, I do like the fact that he rear ended the uh, the van and the car full of the other white supremacists. But <laughs> there are chunks and there are things you torn up on his car that are like, oh, my God, that's because he ran over some people. 
That's because he hit people. That damage is re- is reflective of some humanity that's potentially not here anymore. Yeah. And um, but again, that's the problem that I think a lot of people have. It's like free speech. Free speech does not entitle you to say any old thought that comes into your head, right, particularly yeah. if it's hate speech. Yeah. You know, the hate speech is not covered under freedom of expression. It's 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 not. Yeah. I mean, if you're it, it's a call to arms, ostensibly, mm-hmm. it is it is a verbal threat. It's a verbal assault. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just uh, I'm really kind of saddened. Yeah, I, I really am horrifying for, for all the other things that would, you know, would happen from. And, and look, I'm, I'm from Indiana and <laughs> I grew up with a lot of racists. Uh, I did. I, I grew up with yeah, a lot yeah. of people in my family feeling very comfortable with using the N word. The N word yeah. was never available to me because we were just poor enough that I managed to go to the, you know, the predominantly all black or all African-American junior high school, of which I was one of 20 kids in that class. So yeah. if, as a white kid, if you started, you know, passing that word around, you got the shit kicked out of you and probably for good reason, <laughs> you know, and, and I made a lot of friends. And what I made a lot of friends over was comic books was comic books and the fact that I could draw and I could, I was the drawler as they said. Yeah. And I, I got out a lot of, I got out of a lot of ass weapons because I could do pretty good comic book renderings because, you know, from, from like three or four, my dad, the only way that he could interact with me because he was, you know, very quickly realized he didn't want to be a father. Yeah. He would leave, he would leave comic books around because that was at least a sense of continuity from his childhood. He was a comic book collector. So I don't know if that's encoded on your DNA, but Hey, thanks, Peter. That was good. Peter. <laughs> and, uh, but I, so how I learned to draw and also is, uh, you know, I was anemic, uh, when I was born that caused a lot of health issues for me. I, I, you know, was an insomniac from a very early age, never went to sleep and it was dyslexic. It led to a lot of things. So I had to train myself or educate myself visually. And one of the things that I would do is I would just sit down with reams and reams of of stationery and I would just copy panels from these comic books over and over and over again. So comic books became a shorthand to me for uh, language and expression because I I could understand it visually. And even to this day, if I'm talking to you and it's a concept that I don't really get or you're explaining something to me that I may not initially get, I'm going to be visualizing. I'm going to be drawing into my head while you're telling me that just that I can have a frame of reference or a context that works for me. Yeah. yeah. What, what kind incredible. of comics were you into? Mostly what's make mine Marvel. You're, you're Marvel guy. Make mine Marvel. I, I was drawn consistently <laughs> to the characters of Marvel consistently to the artists. For me, it's, it's, it's really a, a lot about the art. Uh, it's, it is a lot about the writing DC. I would go to DC when I wanted to get my writer fix in. Because I always liked DC's canon of characters, and I liked, I I did very much like the sense of the fact that they were they were gods, they were gods in our presence. Because even though you know Bruce Wayne is a, is immortal and he's a human being, he is certainly one of the best of us, and he has certainly been able to push himself to to a, an Olympic level, you know, quality of physical perfection, and and mentally is you know one of the most you know intuitive uh, detectives ever. And that stuff is, it really appeals to me. You know, it's much like the same way that I, I grew up really enjoying Sherlock Holmes. You know, I, I'm a big fan of detective fiction. I, I like, you know, solving mysteries and puzzles and stuff. But yeah. Marvel, are you, you got to be kidding me. I mean, look at these characters. I mean, you, you, Spider-Man, Captain America, the, the Avengers, uh, the, the X-Men. I mean, arguably, I was into the new X-Men before I got to the old X-Men. And, mm-hmm. and I think I got in like issue 109, which was a burn issue, I believe. 
and immediately gravitated towards his dry, drawing style and immediately gravitated towards Wolverine. I love that character. Yes. Yeah. You know? And uh and 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 just discovering artists that I really like, you know, Kirby Kirby is badass, you know, but I think Kirby is an acquired taste. I think Kirby in, in my case took a very long time to embrace. Took a really, really long time, particularly as I was learning artwork and as I was going to school and, and trying to prepare myself for uh, an art career because if the makeup effects didn't you know thing didn't work out it was definitely oh i'm, I'm gonna go into graphic arts i'm gonna go into comic books and okay. you know, that kind of storytelling so i wanted to have something to fall back on and then the older you get the older you get when you look at kirby you do realize it is it's very representational it's representational it's about at maximum action it's about an impactful drawing that leaps off the page it has very much a lot to do with repetition and patterning yeah but then you find other artists, you know, uh, uh, Neil Adams, uh, because, you know, in the 70s, that's when it was his run of Batman and his run on the Brave and the Bold, an amazing renderer, an amazing illustrator. Uh, John Byrne, love John Byrne, yeah. you know, he's, and, and the fact that John Byrne was an incredibly talented artist and, and a powerful storyteller. Uh, that really cut a long way with me. So my collections were based a lot upon following John as a writer and as an artist. I was also really huge into to Kurt Swan. But that's kind of a that's kind of a nod to my father. Kurt Swan drew Superman for ever. That was your father's father's Superman. Okay. You know? huh. And Kurt Swan kept illustrating like the book. Like when George Reeves was was on making his show, that was the around then. Yeah, that's like the classic. That's like the classic Superman, and that's okay. Kurt Swan. And he managed well into his late sixties, early seventies. But he was still working on the book in the eighties before. John Byrne took it over and retooled the book, and that was John's epic run oh, of, of Superman. Steel. Yes, the Man of Steel run. Yes, yes. that yes, yes. changed that changed the book. You know, changed that character for for a lot of people, and it was so inventive and so resourceful. Yeah, you know, Byrne's a good storyteller. Love yeah. that guy. Uh, yeah. You know, then you know Morrison. Oh my God, it blew my fucking head apart. Uh, love him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's just. Morrison just oh my god just the guy who gets off on on the fact that he's alive on this planet and he can think thoughts and craft the way that he wants to and have such a spin onto it somebody that tries you know uh, everything and tries to sample the world who's had so many experiences it's a little weird casting spells but you know what i'll give it to him i'll give it to him and who out of this group has not actually tried to cast a morrison spell right here i have watched he has he went to some magic convention magic with a k yeah. and he was like a speaker there yeah. and yeah. he has, gives this like like 30 hour-long speech on how to yeah. fucking cast a spell which is essentially when you when you're talking about magic with a k right mm -hmm. it's yeah. it's essentially about um controlling your own will i guess yeah. and controlling your yeah. own reality yeah so it's it's a lot of like write this on a piece of paper and then it's going to happen yeah you know that's essentially what he's saying well it's also it's it's that you 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 parse it down into the simplest phrase yeah. of what you want i would like a lot of money yeah and then and you cross sigils. out yes you cut you cut you cross out basically the doubles of any letters and then you selectively cross out this and cross out that and then you turn them into sigils by turning them around and around and drawing them and changing the form and deconstructing the shapes of your n's and your s's and trying to come up with something that is aesthetically <laughs> pleasing to you <laughs> you know and it's like well even if this doesn't work i'm having a lot of fun doodling yeah. Sort of play. That's my next tattoo. You know, it's like but, a lot of that uh, stuff is steeped in Gnosticism as well, like yeah. modern Gnosticism and the the revival of it all. And 
Um, yeah. I, uh, just since we're talking about this just for a second, uh, Vincent Price recorded a lot of old albums and spell books and stuff like that. There's mm-hmm. a lot of really cool stuff on YouTube. Yeah. Of him and his creepy voice just like that romantically dispensing magic. Yeah, it's so good. <laughs> but anyway, go ahead. No, no, I know exactly what you're talking about. That's a that's a little hidden gem. Yeah. It's, it's but it's got a, like a really weird esoteric name. It's like Vincent Price's Witch spell match. casting witchery book yeah. and, and cook cook thing. <laughs> like what? I will sit and listen. I I love Vincent Price. I, I yeah. still alive to me. Uh, yeah. I will go down a rabbit hole sometime, and and it doesn't always pay off. It's not always gold, but by God, it's usually worth it. If you yeah. go down the rabbit hole of trying to track down his various TV appearances from the 70s, <laughs> some of them are gems, like when he was on the Brady Bunch and he was Dr. Whitehead on the, the, Shit, you know, famous, the famous two-parter wow. in Hawaii episode. Wow. But he's on a really fucking weird episode of uh, Here's Lucy. Yeah. Uh, you know where lucy finds a painting at a garage sale and it may be you know there's another painting underneath it and she needs to get it you know verified because it could be a forgotten masterpiece so of course you're cool. going to go and talk to vincent price because he's an yeah. authority which he was an authority on art and and she happens to come over to vincent price's house on the weird the odd day that he's rehearsing a new horror film in his home with a new actress weird <laughs> funny how that works out yeah. and it just it, it's Don't not good <laughs> yes that's right mrs carmichael of course no, I, please come in and borrow a cup of sugar it's most bewildering Ooh, a fine bracing beer mm. just like doesn't work doesn't work oddly enough it would uh i i tell you another one though it's not necessarily vincent price but if you get a chance have you guys seen the paul lind halloween special I think uh-huh. it's like 1974, 1975. No, but I have seen War Gods of the Deep. Ah, yes, you have. That's a good one. Well, it's it's Paul Lind, okay. America's favorite macho man. Okay. And it's got Kiss on it, and I believe Wolfman Jack guest appear on it. So yeah. if you get a chance to, uh, and I think it's got Margaret Hamilton, the original witch from from The Wizard of Oz. Oh yeah. yeah. And I think, uh, uh, oh god, what's her name? Witchy Poo from from um, H.R. Puff and stuff is in it as well. Okay. And it is terrible. Oh man, it is so bad. Um, another good one, though, if you've never seen it, is the Horror Hall of Fame, that's hosted by Vincent Price. Oh shit! Yeah, cool. that's another good one. That's also on YouTube, and you know, you know, do like a he talks to um, uh, oh gee, Samwise Gamgee's dad, uh, uh, Gomez Adams. Aston. Uh, yeah, John Aston. Oh yeah. Talks to John Aston. He talks to Frank Gorshin. It's cool. it's a lot of fun. And uh, also to finish off the Vincent Price, the hilarious house of Frightmarestein. <laughs> What's the name? Okay, I'm giving you gold here, people. Yes. <laughs> it's it's a Canadian TV series in the 70s that had had about three thousand dollars. Though they they paid Vincent Price three thousand dollars. He came in over a three day period and recorded all these poems, bumpers, intros, and outros. And basically, they played that throughout the rest of the nine years that the show was on. Cool. But it's this weird Canadian TV show, and Billy Van is the host of it, and he plays a vampire character, and he plays an old witch character, and a, and a howling werewolf DJ type of thing. It's, uh, again, 70s, bizarre shit. What's it called again? Check it out if you can. The Hilarious House of Frightmarestein. <laughs> Patent pending. <laughs> wow. TM. Yes. Put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> I cannot wait to watch that. Steph, you want to get the next one? Yes, sir. 
um, so what did your parents do for a living when you were a kid or growing up? Um, for a short period of time, when I, when I was born up until about the time I was four, my father was a produce manager for a disused grocery store chain called Scott Lad Foods. Then he gave up the supermarket business and went into his true love of uh, working on motorcycles, repairing motorcycles, and eventually that metastasized into building high-performance race bikes and then taking them around the country. He oh. Uh, his bikes had set over 125 IDBA records. Uh, he had like 31 NHRA records. He was voted the 1982 Sports uh, Sportsman Mechanic of the Year. Wow. Hmm. Uh, and uh, my mom, my mom was a mom. She got a degree in momness at Mom University. <laughs> uh, that was in Kentucky. It was either Bowling Green or uh, or Burksville. Um, mom at various times had basically, she, she had, uh, she was a seamstress at one point. She was doing industrial curtains and things like that. She had a night job where she was working for UPS, uh, in the early days, um, worked at various other jobs, uh, for like 15 years. She was a, a house cleaner. Uh, and now she is a semi-pro amateur golfer. Right now? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. My stepdad live in Arizona and, uh, and she's amazing. My mom is this, uh, That's amazing. my mom and dad had a very, very tumultuous relationship, uh, a very abusive relationship. And, and, and my mom, you know, kind of denied herself for a long time and she kept a great many secrets. And it's only like been in the last five to 10 years, we've discovered these secrets. Like my nephew, Don is an amazing guitar player, uh, all by ear, self-taught. And had no idea where he got it. I mean, I know my father played like nine instruments and I played five instruments myself. And, and uh, but I had no idea that my mom was an accomplished guitar player. She learned from my from my grandfather, who was also, like, you know, just like almost professional quality, you know, uh, recording artist. And uh, I have to tell you, three years ago, I saw my mom play guitar for the first time. I had no idea she could even play. I sat there Holy and cried shit. throughout the whole performance. Wow. And, you know, she's just this she's just this amazing woman. She just has this, you know, just this very private side to her. And she just kind of does things for herself. I mean, my brother and I, we weren't around her for 10 years. And uh, I know that I know that was pretty hard on her. So I know that she she had to transform into a, a, a very tough, resilient person to survive. Um, it's really interesting that the engineering side and the mechanical aptitude side, I definitely got from my father, but everything artistic I got from my mom. Cool. My mom was the first person to put crayons and paper in my hand. She was the first one. And if I couldn't draw it, she would sit there and draw on the paper and show me how to do it. She was always, uh, she, she got into ceramics for a while. She was going out before she started making her own. She, she would go out and buy these unpainted ceramic busts and she would paint them and layer on mm -hmm. patina and age them and stuff like that. And it was just cool. so inspirational. To, and, and she, she never thought, and she still doesn't think of herself as an artist. And she still will sit there and goes, I don't know where you got this from. And it's like, yeah, you know, <laughs> lady, you know, <laughs> yeah. so your pants. dad sound, sound like he was a real like manly dude working on bikes and shit yeah he so was, did he have a hard time understanding i want to go into makeup Dad. yeah he did he did not dig it at all he he did not <laughs> dig it at all he thought it was gonna uh he thought i was gonna end up gay <laughs> he didn't like that uh-huh he did not like that and told me once that he said i will always love you and forgive you for anything as long as you never lie never steal or i'm gonna say the word and it's gonna be crunchy folks um or become a fag that's that's father's rules that uh -huh. was father's rules <laughs> he had a lot 
lot of he had a lot of issues, and unfortunately, he he died. Uh, he died at forty seven. Wow. Uh, undetected aneurysm in his in his heart. So that was uh, that was interesting. We didn't get a chance to uh, to wrap up our relationship or work out any of the issues or whatever. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. I, I've had I've got no choice. I have to I have to deal yeah. with it. But he didn't see the vision in it, and and quite frankly, he died before I'd ever really kind of done anything in my career that that was that was noteworthy. Uh, I know one of the last. You know, one of the big movies that I worked on at the time, and I took him to see it, and it was Batman Returns. And he couldn't say anything complimentary about uh, about the movie. He was offended by the fact that, that Danny DeVito was wearing a, a piss and shit stained Union suit, and that offended him. <laughs> that offended him so much because he grew up on classic Penguin from the oh, comic books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He grew up on on, on Burgess Meredith as yeah. as his Penguin. Mm-hmm. So to see this this mutant this creature yeah. you know spouting out this green vial and, and and it was mostly he kept saying it over again this piss-stained union suit yeah. <laughs> and, my dad uh, has the same same issue with those movies yeah. in that he, growing up like that was he didn't read the comics so yeah. my dad was always like why is it so dark why is it so dark <laughs> right. he, and whenever even when batman begins came out he said that and it made me i hadn't thought about it in years but i was like oh yeah he used to say that yeah. even about the tim burton movies yeah so, you know, every generation is different, I guess. And you look at the Tim Burton yeah. movies now, and it's like, oh my god, it's <laughs> this is shitty because I'm I'm such a Marvel fan. But I just I watched the Tobey Maguire Spider Man and Spider Man Two the other night, and I don't think I've seen either one of them. And I worked on the second one, but I haven't seen either one of them in at least ten years. Uh-huh. And I love those movies. And I put them on the other night, and I'm like, oh my god, what is this? This is terrible. <laughs> this is so she literally say that the spiders have maybe developed what she's calling a quote unquote spider sense? Oh my god. Oh, this is so bad. This is so terrible. I mean, you contrast and compare with you know with the way that Tom Holland looks now, and it's I just keep looking at Toby McGuire, and it's like he's forty eight yeah, here. He's yeah. forty eight. <laughs> he's yeah, his back, his his spine is turned to balsa wood. This is not oh, <laughs> or deserve right. right. <laughs> I tried to watch it. He's, the a, he's a dime store Jake well. Gyllenhaal. If you ask me, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> wow, it's so it, it, it's just but it, it, it just you know it just goes to show you in what eight years, you know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. obviously since then it's been when it was what two thousand and two or whatever. But even in particularly in the last eight years of, of you know Marvel Studios, it's like, what is this thing? <laughs> this yeah. is wow. This is one of these things is not like the others, yeah. you know. Um, <laughs> oh well, that that happens, right? It's generational. Um, I still love the 66 Batman though, uh, particularly more so now that, you know, that Adams passed away. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I am, I am happy. I got to meet him once. I, you know, cool. fortunately it was as a little kid. Oh, shit. Well, I, I met him at the low period of his life, which is where I tend to meet most people. Uh, <laughs> I, I met Adam when he was on the 500 world of wheels car show that was touring around the Midwest. And oh, wow. Sometimes he and Bert Ward would show up. Sometimes it was just Adam. Sometimes it would be just Bert showing up. So at various times, and because my my dad also did you know custom custom bikes, uh, I would have to go to these shows and hang out at these shows with him. And one of the perk benefits was getting to sit in the Batmobile and getting to meet Batman and getting to meet Robin. And you know uh, that stuff was really cool. And uh, I miss him. I miss him a lot. It's yeah. uh, it's a shame. You know, he was he was such a great he was such a great man. Um, uh, anyway, I'm sorry, I'm getting off topic here. All right. 
No, so, no problem. You're, anything's fine. Um, who do you think you admired most growing up? It could be somebody personal. It could be somebody mm. on TV. I've admired so many people. It's it's hard to narrow it, it down. Um, uh, I should go with something that's pure, I suppose. I guess for the longest time, I really looked up to Lon Chaney Sr. Cool. Okay. And the fact that this man did a series of makeups and characterizations over a 10, 15 year period that can still stand up to a great many of the contemporary makeup illusions that we, that we have now were such a singular design at the time, like his Phantom of the Opera, really hard to, to beat that makeup. His, his uh, you know, man in the beaver hat makeup from London after midnight, that leery eyed vampire thing. It's, you know, just the right combination of, of plastic, you know, stretchy skin and uh, and just the right temperament. He's crafted these amazing characters, you know, that will still stand up even today, much like, you know, Jack Pierce, Jack Pierce's makeup for, you know, for, for Karloff as the monster. I mean, that's a classic. I mean, do you ever not, you know, think of that square headed neck bolted design, you know, mm-hmm. um, and then, you know, uh, I was a huge fan of, of Gordon Parks. Uh, for a while there, the the African American uh, poet, uh, photographer, movie producer, uh, composer, uh, his his you know in addition to the poetry and the photographs and things that he'd done and covering fashion and just wars and just man led an amazing life. He's he's most known for a lot of people as producing the original Shaft, the okay, movie with wow. Richard Roundtree. Uh-huh. And and for producing that soundtrack and for you know for for hiring a chef <laughs> to come yeah. onto it and actually talk about chef, you know. But he yeah. was a very he was a very influential uh, man to me, mostly because I, I read his story, just you know, sick one day and and went to the went to the library and just popped up in this book and started reading this book about this man and you know just was completely fascinated. So I looked up to those two guys. What what was the point? What, what movie did you see? What was see? the point of that? No, you no, asked no. me a question. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm rephrasing while oh, I'm saying Oh, sorry. <laughs> what, what, no, at the point in time. What was the point in time in which you, or what movie was it that that, that made you feel like I, I want to go into makeup? It was The Wolfman? Or? No, I can tell you, the, I can tell you the, the movie that made me want to do this, you know, as a career, uh, irre- irrefutably, that I was going to do it as a career. And uh, that was that was John Carpenter's The Thing remake of 1982. Okay, yeah, right. Because I'd seen a lot of things, and I knew that I was always, you know, that I was going to do makeup. But you know, I I thought that, you know, in Indiana there was no such thing as going off to be a a makeup artist. I mean, it was there were so few people that you that you kind of knew. I mean, Jack Pierce had been long dead before I even cracked a book and started reading about this stuff, there was this young, this young, you know, stalwart named Rick Baker Mm -hmm. and Rick had just done a a little uh, obscure film called star Wars that nobody ever heard of, (laughs) you know, but at the time, you know, and, and I remember being completely moved by, by uh, Stephen King Salem's lot, the TV movie with, with David soul and James Mason. So it, but yeah, right. But it, it didn't really settle in and sink into me that, yeah, I was going to go and do it as a career until until 82. And this is this is still I was on the fence because, you know, the year the summer before that was the howling and then American Werewolf in London. 
And those movies were huge. Those movies set my brain on fire. And then you come to the thing and the thing is just, my God, you know, what is this? You know, it's John Carpenter, the guy who did Halloween and the fog and, you know, an escape from New York and, and Kurt Russell. It was a huge, you know, Kurt Russell fan since, you know, seeing him as jungle boy on, you know, on an episode of, of Gilligan's Island and, you know, he's Dexter Riley in the world's, you know, the world's strongest man and the computer wore tennis shoes and, you know, and this amazing movie and then this young kid named Rob Botine who just blew up the screen with these amazing, you know, these amazing creatures, this amazing character. And and that is what said to me, like, that's it. This is the only job I want to do. This is the only thing I want to do. What, whatever this is, I want to get this in my face and <laughs> I want to live this. Uh, and still haven't got there yet. God damn it. What, so was it immediately <laughs> like the credits are rolling up? You're sitting in this theater in 1982. And you're like, that's fucking it. Or did it kind of simmer for a while? And then like a few months later, you're like, Fuck, that really is what I want. It was as the credits rolled up because it had been simmering up to that point. Up to that point, uh, there was a, a magazine called Cinefantastique. And then it was also briefly yeah. mentioned in, in Fangoria. But there was a time there were no no big horror stories other than the ones that were movies that were going to be made. And that's what the reporters covered. So I was as a, you know, as a nerd or a fan or whatever you want to call it, I was already studying and following and read, Oh, next week, you know, we're going to talk with Dean Cundy, you know, cinematographer. Da, da, da. So we were tracking the movie. We were, I was tracking the movie up until it came out okay. and just finally seeing how it all played out and, you know, the angles and the light, Dean Cundy's amazing cinematography and Van the performances. And all that shit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it was just, no, this, this is it. This is it. And then I, I don't know how many times I've seen that remake. It's, it's gotta be 70 or 80 times. I would just watch it over and over and over again. I used to write, I used to write fan fiction about it. I, I was completely, oh, I was completely involved in the cosmology of it. It was so much more interesting because I had already, I had already seen the Howard Hawks Christian Nyby version on on Sammy Terry, you know, mm -hmm. and and that's a great movie, and that's a great movie. I, I will still to this day I can watch it, and it's a wonderful piece of filmmaking. Uh, as to who really directed it, there is a lot of Hawks in it, but it also feels like a Christian Nyby picture. So it's really you know, it's really hard. And it's that old studio system and all the, the men are men and there were actual women in it. You know, there was, you know, as opposed to, you know, Carpenter's version, which became very, very Spartan and, you know, very male only. It was really interesting. And, uh, um, you know, my girlfriend and I, we had the opportunity when the, when the prequel came out in 2011, we made a day of it. We went and saw the prequel. Then we came home and watched the Carpenter version. And then we finished up with the Howard Hawks version. And nice. it actually kind of works in a weird sort of well. way. We were really big. We were really fucking high. <laughs> uh, and, you know, the third, the third film is, is, is okay. Um, I, I'm not going to poo poo it. Uh, it's one of those things. It's, it's much like, um, it's much like Superman Returns, you know, if you're going to be a fanboy and you can convince someone to give you 11, 12, 30, 60 million dollars to do a love, you know, poem to, you know, your inspiration and they're going to let you do it, then then go for it. But I think in particular in that prequel, that guy spent an awful lot of time, an awful lot of time trying to make sure that everything he did lined up and fell into place exactly with Carpenter's version. And I applaud him for that. It was a job well done, but who fucking cares? It's there. There's nothing so interesting necessarily about that, that story that, that warranted that. And as a non sequitur, it, you know, you're going into it knowing that you already know the ending because the ending yeah. is the beginning of Carpenter's picture. Right. You know, 
And still at that point, it's just basically it's it's a Chinese, it's a Russian doll type of thing. It's a mystery inside a mystery. So you're nowhere any closer in seeing that film other than the fact you actually get to see the alien ship working and the, you know, the alien kind of moving around in its own environment. But they start out almost exactly the same way, you know, so I would like to see a little bit more. But in terms of, you know, what everyone in my community freaks out, I was like, man, they had all that stuff practical and, you know, the, and then they covered it over with digital. Yeah. And? <laughs> that's their money that's what they wanted to do with it they don't care how you feel about it uh i could i could speak of something recent that we know about but i won't because uh, i oh. won't be tacky but it was like well you know you do all this stuff and then they're going to go through and they're going to you know replace it with digital versions and that's it was like top secret stuff going that's their here. choice yeah that's the filmmaker's choice yeah you know but in terms of being drawn up into this pedantic argument about which is better practical or, or or digital and what's best is to do both of them yes that means it's also twice as expensive you know and what does expense have to do with you enjoying a picture nothing but since it's run by bottom line people everything it's got everything right. to do with that so everything's a compromise it's it's a little weird i just say find your entertainment and your enjoyment where you can yeah, yeah. right I saw um, Prometheus and that Thing prequel around, like, around the same time, right. and I really enjoyed the Thing prequel because it actually was like, oh, cool! I want to see what happened at the Norwegian camp. Awesome! Right. right. Yeah. And then Prometheus was like, who made the aliens? It was like, no one yet. I gotta wait for two more movies. Yeah. And I'm like, God yeah. damn it! Like, that's not what I wanted from Prometheus. I just wanted it's, to the engineers yeah. made them done. Show me an alien. Yep. We're good. Thanks, Ridley. And uh, I was complaining because people were like, you like that thing remake? And I was like, well, it's kind of a prequel, but like at least it answered some yeah. kind of questions. Like, why did the guy cut his yeah. wrists? Like, why, like, exactly. how did they pull the alien from the ship? And then, like, you know, like, I get, like, arguments about it sure. and with, like, the effects and stuff. And, you know, well, I don't mind it. Joel Egerton's a great fucking actor. I love yeah. that guy. Oh, right? I watch him and everything. Mary Elizabeth Winstead also. Oh, why not? Uh, totally She's down. Great. Sky high. Sky high. Oh, yeah. Sky uh, high and death proof. Yeah, uh, yeah. she's great in that and she's a, yeah. she's a great actress i was just There's, watching fargo it, last night she's amazing mm, fargo is great um the only things that really 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 bother me about that thing thing is i i think you dropped the ball on the uh the twisted norwegian corpse uh how it was affected oh, yeah. and how it was done in the picture because you know what that thing is badass that rob Boutin sculpture and my understanding is that it actually started as an old clay pour of robert picardo who played the werewolf in The Howling, which Rob Bottin had also done the makeup effects for. So he had this mm. clay head lying around and he pulled it apart and re-sculpted it and, da -da 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 and tweaked it. And it's this amazing piece. It is this, it is this icon of that film. Yeah. And I'm just saying, with all the technology available, what you could have done, you should have accurately reproduced that thing. And it doesn't look like that. So yeah. that's, that's a big one for me. Uh, the the second one is Jed, the the dog, the camp dog that you see at the beginning of Carpenter's picture, that you mm -hmm. see at the end of the prequel. He's a different color. He's a different color dog. <laughs> yeah, I've seen that movie so many times. It's like, oh, that's no, it's too blonde. There's too much blonde in the fur. You fuck that. Uh, and then, then the last thing is just a question of, of of practicality, and it is the the guy with the replaced femur, right? No, yeah. The uh, if you look in there, you can kind of see they were a little sloppy. You can kind of see what the 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 puppet, you know, the insides actually looked like, and that thing when you see is translucent skin. That's a digital effect. Mm -hmm. It's a digital effect, and it just looks really weird. Yeah, it just looks it looks really weird. It's too it's too 
clear it's too glassy there's not enough obfuscation in it it, it i don't know that it necessarily reads that I mean, because it doesn't make sense. It's a weird kind of a logic. Like, so basically it's sucking out all the genetic material, anything that would possibly give color and everything is clear. That that makes no sense. It was just kind of aesthetically. It was just weird. Yeah. But I didn't and I didn't mind that. I didn't mind the metal fillings, although in my version of the story, it's a, it's an advanced enough alien that it could replicate the look of a filling, but not actually have to make the filling material because I make smart things. <laughs> i mean that'd be great i mean it's traveled who knows how long the alien could it's anything it's everything yeah yeah there's a uh i feel so bad there was a the a writer and uh it was this podcast and she had written a sequel uh called things and it was actually pretty good because it was written from the perspective of the thing Oh, yeah, wow. I'm a sucker to that stuff. It's the same kind of device in Stephen King. Like I was a sucker anytime when he personifies anything like in Cujo, you know, he knew the boy was coming home. You know, it's like, oh, the dog's thinking thoughts. The dog's thinking <laughs> thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she does that with the thing. And so it's like, well, the McCready entity is challenging me. And it's like, oh, OK, you had me at hello. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever have you ever seen a movie called Bad Moon? It's uh, I have seen Bad Moon. Yeah. Have you ever read the book called Thor? I worked on Bad Moon. <laughs> no, uh, I, I fucking love that movie. It's one of my favorite werewolf designs ever. That's Steve Johnson. Uh, yeah, we did yeah, we did that at XFX before. Oh, we, dude, we, that's we fucking amazing. That's I mean, the acting in that movie's pretty. It's not great, but I yeah. fucking love that werewolf and the dog and the werewolf relationship in that movie yeah. is fucking solid. That's like really that good. dog hates that fucking werewolf yeah. so much. <laughs> but and, uh, the, uh, the book Thor is like told from the dog's perspective. If you like right. that kind of thing, you should definitely yeah. read it it's very good like the dog watch the boy walker looks at the werewolf or yeah, exactly. whatever he calls it it's i love it love both yeah. those yeah bad moon that was movie. a fun movie that was a really enjoyable really liked our, our our werewolf um i wish you could find pictures of it unfortunately it got sold in auction but we did a badass display of that werewolf it was upstairs in our, our conference room at at edge effects and uh, just love that suit. Just it was it was really cool. It was a really cool character. It was one of those werewolves that you know the jaw could articulate and open up mm -hmm. really really wide. Like it looked like something that could take a human's mouth and or a head into his mouth and just crush it like an egg. But uh, yeah. yeah, that was a lot of fun and got to meet Michael Pere. He was he was an oh, yeah. he's great. He's like the best person. He's like the best actor in that movie besides the dog, honestly. He's, but, yeah, he's pretty yeah. good. I mean, I just love that fucking movie. I went on it like several years ago. I was like, I need to watch every werewolf movie I can get my hands on. And I was I like, what's it. this Bad Moon movie? And I watched it's like from the like the dog and the werewolf. I was like, well, mm -hmm. all right, put it in. I was fucking love it. It's one of my all time favorite <laughs> I like, love, werewolf I films of all time. I love how they end it with the with the credence Bad Moon Rising, right. and it's got that attitude. Yeah. Like it just leads you on out. It's just like. Yep. You're welcome and and creeped out, you know. Like it's, it's, it's a knee jerk reaction, and uh, I yeah. fall for it every time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no. yeah. Uh, Eric Red did that, right? Director, yes, writer? yes, he did. Body yeah, parts. I, anything yeah, I like he puts, yeah, anything he puts his name on, I'm usually like, this is good. I enjoy very, this. Very provocative you, stuff. You get what I'm into. Interesting filmmaker. Cool. Is there a certain point when you're working on a film or have you get, have you gained a sense or did you always have the sense uh, like as you're working on it, you're like, this is going to be crap. This is going to be amazing. Do you, do you feel like or, or is it pretty much a surprise every time? Mm, I think it's a mixed bag. I, I think there, there are 
sometimes you get feelings, you get indicators when you're on a show and it's mostly from the artistic calls that are being made. Or if you go to set and you're a part of the setups and you kind of like, eh, what is this? This uh -huh. thing doesn't kind of, Oh, this is going to suck because, and, and I've actually, <laughs> I've actually developed a spidey sense towards crap because I've certainly worked on enough yes. of it in my career. <laughs> I have Thank worked you. on you know, demonic toys, Carnosaur and super Mario brothers. You're welcome. Yes. <laughs> I, we're going to ask about that later on. <laughs> Gotta but ask about that it's 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 really hard to and then there's other things that you know that you get the feeling like wow this is this is going to hit and this is going to hit pretty hard and then it doesn't doesn't go anywhere i i actually thought that sphere was going to hit and was going to be a, a really big thing you Bought know the blu-ray myself i mean the dvd at the time <laughs> awesome I, I liked it in high school a lot. oh good yeah. i uh i got i got handed that to to supervise that after they'd gone to other um yeah prosthetic supervisors on the on the show and so i had to pick up the reins six weeks into it so it was just a mad dash for the for the finish line to get that stuff shot and christopher nolan stole pretty much the scene where they're explaining how a wormhole works mm -hmm. in interstellar mm -hmm. putting the, the holes in the paper mm -hmm. that's from fucking yeah. sphere mm -hmm. almost exactly yeah not well, that like they got something out of all it. the time i get it but yeah, yeah, to yeah. me it was just so transparent yeah. and otherwise nolan is so on point most of the time it was um it, it was it was a weird picture i don't, I don't want to speak out of school uh, i know that it was very levinson that directed it and i know that he had also had just finished wag the dog mm. uh -huh. and he was very concerned with locking down the edit of wag the dog so i know that while we were while we were there filming there were a lot of times he didn't want to come out of his trailer because he had an avid setup oh my and he god was, he was cutting it so there would be whole days that things you know didn't get done i don't want to talk at a school i don't want to make it sound like a like a big thing he uh you know that guy is a very accomplished filmmaker he certainly accomplished more film work than uh, <clears throat> more notable film projects than i have but uh it just kind of felt like there was nobody tending the store mm. right gotcha. you know okay um it seems like you're uh well really well versed in pop culture mm. and uh i was wondering do you uh what you call it do you feel like movies are better in a previous generation 50s 60s 70s or whatever or do you think that we're making better movies now mm. i i think uh the only way to answer that question is, is uh, they, they weren't ever better than they are now, um, necessarily. I think it's generational. I, I think it's eras. Uh, I think it's periods of filmmaking. I think there, there, there are gems and masterpieces in every decade of filmmaking. I think in terms of it being a commodity and something that is put together, it has never been more efficient to, to put a film together. Uh, I, I, I'd certainly say that maybe it is easier to put them together but i think in terms of like the i'll just use the marvel films as as my my background for this that it really to make them good you have to be on top of your game and you have to you have to know all the ends and you have to know all the eras and you have to know all the aspects of the character that are going to respond to different age groups and you have to try and parse that out and come up with something that's that's really entertaining um i also think that it's 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 so easy to the point there's a lot of people that second guess what the audience are going to do because that's that's really what it is it's about trying to second guess and what can we put there and they, they'll make them want to go and see this and they'll want to buy it because ostensibly all films are entertainment bound for uh, manipulation 
they're trying to manipulate you. They're trying to either manipulate you into laughing because it's a funny movie or crying because it's a sad movie or thinking, you know, they do, although they don't try to make you think too much anymore. That doesn't make a lot of money. <laughs> That's what indies are for. Yeah. <clears throat> I think that there are always good storytellers that have to go through their trials and their travails to get a good story made. Uh, I think just seeing, you know, in the studio that we work at and kind of looking at things, it's so hard to do anything. It's so hard. There's the fates are against you every turn. It, it's such a delicate tapestry woven together. You know, if there's, if there, if something falls out of place, you know, just there's so much chaos that, that ensues. So I appreciate, you know, any product that comes out. I appreciate that anybody tried to, to make a statement to try and, you know, just to try and do something with it. Obviously I'm much more impressed if you try to push the envelope and, you know, try and, you know, come up with something that's going to make a jaded filmmaker go, Hmm, that's a good thought. I'll right. think about that. But, uh, no, I don't know. I don't know that's, you know, in some aspects it's, it's easier. Cameras are lighter, you know, right. you're not having to worry about, you know, necessarily film stock. I mean, you can film, you know, digitally for hours and hours and right. hours and hours, you know, that part of it is a lot easy. I can tell you that, you know, I worked on a lot of films that were 35 millimeter or 70 millimeter and, you know, Oh, roll out, you know, but, yeah. Don't hear that anymore. Yeah, film, you know? film stock was expensive as fuck, and people are always worried about yeah. doing multiple takes. And right? it changed your perspective on yeah. how you would do a take. There yeah. would be times when we were on a roll, and someone would go, "We've got a hundred feet left. We got four hundred feet left. We need to fucking knock this one out of the park." Yeah, and there was this pressure across nice. the board. Everybody, I can tell you, I can tell you, I have been there. I can tell you, I've held my breath. Uh -huh. just like other people where you get this feeling where it's like is almost as if we'd stretched out hands and we're touching which is like nobody move <laughs> we're going to get through this one <laughs> and the other thing you realize about about filmmaking too is it is a shit ton of happy accidents it is a shit ton of happy accidents it, it is a lot of luck if you if you want to call it luck it, it's it's a lot of effort and it's a lot of people working towards you know uh, the same goal and and a lot of you know a lot of avenues of support coming from that, but there's so many things that can go wrong. Some of the things that can go wrong, the best laid plans, and completely screw that up. Mm -hmm. Right. So, take it away, Stephen. <clears throat> <laughs> Sorry, was a, going over the list. I minimized my fucking window, and I'm just like, oh shit. Maximize uh, that shit. <laughs> All right, I'm, I'm back. Um, sorry. Uh, that's okay. You're amongst friends. <laughs> Do you see yourself mainly as a sculptor or a mold maker? Hmm. Well, neither of those. Bad question. Next. No, I'm not. I'm not. I did. Uh, oh, no, 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 no. It's fine. Uh, I, I love to sculpt. Sculpting is my favorite thing to do. My second favorite yeah. thing to do is to paint. Uh, mostly, what I what I've been doing at the studio that that Andrew and I work at for the last three years is is been fabrication, and usually it's been custom silicone fabrication. Uh, hello, yeah, fabrication yeah, yeah. of fabrication <laughs> of autopsies and organs, and you know. Uh, yeah surgical you know surgical simulations and, and things like that and that is the that is the ultimate because it, it has to look real 
Um, I try not to I try not to slather a bunch of blood on things because blood is the get out of jail free card. And particularly when you're trying to elevate mm -hmm. your, your yourself and your level of artifice, the idea is, you know, to put those and there's enough interesting colors and textures and varietal changes in, in the human body that you can certainly make something more interesting and, and more compelling. And then I let them slather it up with blood on set. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, sculpting is definitely my, my favorite thing to do and, and painting being second, but I, I seem to have an aptitude or an ability at, uh, designing and executing gags, uh, cool. killing people, transformations, tentacle effects, um, just weird little things. And I, I don't know if it's necessarily because I was such a study of two dimensional artwork and, and like I storyboard things. And so you know, being comfortable with being able to produce, you know, sequential artwork somehow allows me to sort of break them down into its constituent parts and, and think things through a little bit. Uh, that's definitely, that's helped me out a lot in terms of, you know, we've done uh, like wipes and dissolves, like in the, in the second species movie. Uh, I don't know if you saw it, but they were, they were testing Natasha Henstridge and they're trying different compounds on her. And one of the compounds makes her, her blister up, which was a, a practical makeup. But in the day, we wanted to show it healing. So I came in with a, a green painted Natasha Henstridge chest and spent the day slowly building, uh, you know, building huge pus filled forms and then Whoa. slowly working them backwards, working them backwards, making smaller, reducing the makeup and huh. then filming a couple of little elements of like, you know, little spurts of pus and this, that and the other. And all of that was comped in and basically did sort of a, a digitally assisted lap dissolve. Cool. And and I got a and I got you know a little clap of applause from the VFX uh, supervisor on that and he's like wow this this worked out really well because you know I was just thinking it was going to be a couple of stages and you worked at all these stages like you know how did you how did you do that I'm like it just it just seems to be the most logical way to do it you know I did grow up and spend an awful lot of time studying those old lab dissolved transformations of Lon Chaney Jr. and the Wolfman mm -hmm. and you kind of see what worked and you kind of see what didn't. Uh, much, much like with the stop motion. I even played around with stop motion as a kid. So cool. uh, being able to mentally play around with linear time has been very constructive and helpful for me. Hmm. That's very insightful. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> he got me drunk. Blame him. I, I'm just I feel like a new man. I feel like a new like, man. I feel like I got two pages out of a, some secret book there I wasn't supposed to be reading. <laughs> That's magic with a K, y'all. It's kind of the Cliff Notes version. <laughs> that was my Cooper impression. <laughs> <laughs> Gee whiz. Okay, so now we're at this part of the interview that is kind of like, remember the Chris Farley thing, uh, uh, the sketch where he's like, remember you and the Beatles? What was that like? Yeah, what was that like? Yeah, uh, this is kind of that. Did you meet Paul McCartney? <laughs> yeah, yeah. How, were the, how was the how Beatles? How was that? <laughs> you remember that band you were in, the Beatles? <laughs> yeah. What was that like? Yeah, what was that there? like? All right. That's exactly it what was awesome. Is. Cool. So um, let's just get right to it. What was it like working on Super Mario Brothers? Because that seems like it was fucking insane. Super Mario Brothers was a, was a lot of fun. Uh, yeah. Super Mario Brothers, I was working for my good friend at the time, Rob Berman, and we were working for... He's and pouring some tea right now. No, I was... I <laughs> really hear that. Sorry about that. I was, I'm an old man, and it's, so it leaked out. It sounds like a fucking cartoon. And uh, we were both working for uh, Patrick Totopoulos, who is now a, a director and a famous production designer. He was the production designer and the guy who uh, was production designer and supervised the makeup effects for Independence Day. He was uh, for, for the... The Emmerich Godzilla movie. 
uh, and and I had known Patrick, but I was was working for Rob. Um, it was a lot of fun. It was a game that I was interested in. The directors were our husband and wife team, Rocky, uh, Rocky and Annabelle Morton. They had directed the uh, the Max Headroom movie, and they had been responsible for directing some of the Max Headroom television series. And being a Max Headroom fan, I was really excited about that. Uh, we were going to be working with Dennis Hopper. One of the one of the earliest films I can remember my father taking me to was a drive-in screening of uh, of Easy Rider. So I knew who, you know, who Dennis Hopper was for a long time. I got to meet him. He was amazing. Uh, we, he didn't want to come to the studio. I'd actually, I'd actually worked with him twice. So that's not really true. I'd, I'd worked with him on a little thing at, uh, uh, called Red Rock West over at John Beekler's. And that's the first time I got to meet Dennis Hopper. And then the second time I was like, Hey, good to see you again, buddy. And having Dennis Hopper call you buddy is just priceless. Uh, we, we went to his house in Santa Monica. It was a, it was an old boat repair um, shed, but on the inside of it, it was absolutely amazing. It had an invisible ceiling, which is like a two inch thick plexiglass uh, partition. He had a 50 seat personal little uh, auditorium for, for doing uh, and a mini stage for doing work throughs of uh, run throughs of little plays. Wow. He, he had this amazing art collection, uh, Warhol, Lichtenstein, uh, Pollock, and so just yeah, I couldn't touch anything, but he, he led me around the house and he showed Rob and I all this is amazing artwork. Uh, it was a lot of hard work. It was it was it was interesting. Then we got to set and it all kind of abruptly fell apart. <laughs> so it felt pretty good up until the set. It felt mm. like, well, even well, when you were making like those Goombas and shit, didn't make the Goombas. Okay. They had actually they had actually spread out the creature stuff between three different shops. Okay. The King Koopa stuff. Uh, which was all the the transformation and iterations of Dennis Hopper. We did that stuff. Um, Makeup Effects Labs did the Goombas, in which my my friend Vince Niebla sculpted and painted those. Hey, Vinny. Uh, <laughs> and then the third shop was um, oh, God, what was his name? Oh, I'm screw. He did Yoshi. It was uh, Dave Nelson. Okay. Dave Nelson and Mark Matry that worked on that stuff. But we had gone to set and this, this mad rush to get things to set. And when we got to set, by the time we got there, what we didn't know is that Rocky and Hannah Bell were terminating their marriage uh, <laughs> while they were directing the picture. So there was oh, wow. there was a lot of there was a lot of, well, I just told the crew member to go do this. Well, I told that crew member to go do that. It was it was back and forth. But that must have been that. Of course, that was a detriment to the whole production. Yeah. However, that movie seemed like it was kind of fucked even before that it it changed from its original inception his original inception was much more interesting the original director was going to be greg beeman greg beeman went on to do mom and dad save the save the world yes right okay. that made a fun movie right yeah, what yeah. and you remember like the the character designs and stuff like that yeah. and you know the kingdom and the you know da, 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 da. that's what this movie looked like that's what patrick had designed it looked very much like the mario brothers from the game you know okay mushroom inspired structures and everything was kind of bright and fanciful looking these weird byzantine mosque type shapes it was bright and it was sunny and it was interesting and somewhere along the line and again this happened because it was the 90s everything had to be dark everything yeah. had to be dark and everything yeah. had to be terse and so it became this other thing it became this bleak blasted out you know uh, post-apocalyptic type world and you know uh, the dinosaurs had basically they they were an extension of like our our worst you know, possible attitudes in terms of like polluting and using up our natural resources and stuff like that. And it just became this, this weird, dark kind of thing, which I'm assuming that the studio thought that, you know, or DJ Caruso or whoever was shepherding that thing, they thought that that was going to be more marketable. 
does your spidey sense go off at this point? Did you, had, had it developed? <laughs> it started. Yeah, it definitely, it had definitely started. Okay. And, uh, you know, it was, it was tough filmmaking. And then after a while, you know, once, once you're in there in any kind of tough situation that they throw at you and they change things, it's so hard on you because you're making up for lost ground that you don't have time to breathe and you don't have time, you don't have time to relax. So there was more time spent about like, Oh, oh running around, running, Oh, do this. Oh, let's right. do this. Let's do that. But yeah, it, it was it the movie that I wanted to see. No, no, it was right. a, that was a, it was a big disappointment when that came out. I had that poster on my wall for years oh though. I wouldn't, let, I wouldn't let the fight go like, no, maybe I'll watch it someday. And it'll be better. <laughs> Was there ever a, a Japanese Nintendo representative ever on set or anything like Not that? Not that I ever memory? saw, but when I came there, yes, I did know it was going to go badly because yeah. the night that we arrived there, it was when Mario and Luigi are jumping into the back of one of these dump trucks, uh-huh. and the stunt guys were set up to do it, and they had they had basically like uh, pads in the back of the truck. And I don't know whether the truck was going a little too fast or the stuntman, you know, uh, wanted to overachieve or whatever. But he jumped, hit the mattress the wrong way, bounced out and broke his leg. And that was when, <laughs> this when I first got there. So I was like, it's going to be a bumpy ride, kids. <laughs> <laughs> I've been on sets where people have gotten hurt. I've been on sets where people died, which, by the way, that is the worst. I mean, I, obviously. You, like the, the day of the day oh, somebody yeah. died? Oh, yeah. What yeah, movie yeah. was that? Oh my God! Uh, it's, what, which movie wasn't it? Uh, the the worst one was a TV <laughs> miniseries of Stephen King's. Again, Stephen King's is a curse. It was called Rose Red. Uh-huh. Right, yeah. it was like two thousand two thousand one. Right. Yeah. Okay, there was uh, the bad guy in the movie was David Dukes, not the white supremacist, but David Dukes, the actor. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh huh. And they'd filmed they'd filmed find a that few comical. scenes of him. I know, right? Well, you know, at the time we were like, oh, it's a little weird. Back to Charlottesville. <laughs> so we, we, we show up there and we're shooting outside of Seattle, but but we show up and things are weird. I don't know how to describe it, but you know, we're picked up by Transpo and things things just kind of seem weird and there's like some, you know, this weird code that seems to be going over the radio. And basically we found out what what had happened was is that David Duke uh, had done his day's worth of filmmaking for the day, went back to his hotel, um, got changed, got into his tennis togs, and went down and played two sets of tennis, uh, came back up to his room to take a shower. He was going to join some of his castmates for dinner, and uh, he never joined them for dinner. And then the next morning when his when Transpo came to pick him up, he wasn't in the lobby, and he wasn't answering his, his phone, and they went up there, and you know management opened up the door, and there he was. He dropped dead of a heart attack on the floor after his two yeah. sets of, uh, of tennis. Uh, he was in his mid forties at the time. Jesus, wow. and it was just it was just a little bit too much for his heart. You know, his two you know two games of tennis, and it was and it was just odd. It was really weird. And and we had all these people up there and all this you know uh, all these puppets and all these things that had to be shot. And the idea was to to keep pushing forward to keep pressuring on and they would rewrite it that they hadn't filmed enough of of him to really kind of establish his, his character and then slowly but surely we we had to do the unpleasant task of we had to actually do a likeness makeup for a photo double for an acting double to to basically turn him into david duke so that they could extend some of the scenes of the actual footage that they did have and it was just uh it was just it was weird and and I don't think that there's any good reason to, to die. I'm not real big for patriotism and rah-rah. You should die for your country, boy. But I can tell you one of the worst ways to die is, is to die on a movie set. It's, yeah. um, it's so lonely and it's so jarring and it's so horrifying. It's so cold. It's it's just everything that you don't want. And, and I can't poetically or naively go, well, he died the way that he wanted. You know, that's just... 
No, no, you're on a hotel. You probably didn't, you know, travel with your husband or your wife. You know, you're probably not there with your kids, and you know, and and you die in a hotel room. It's it's just terrible, you know. Um, yeah. we, we had that on Species too. Unfortunately, it wasn't any one of the cast. It was the unit production manager's husband. Uh, after a long day's worth of filmmaking, I guess they went back because she was there on location with him, and uh, they went back to the hotel room. And sometime during the night, he had an episode, and he dropped dead in their hotel room. And, Heart attack again or what? Yeah, yeah, you know, and uh, and it's just it's just terrible, and you don't know. And you know, she left the picture because none of us blamed her. You know, it's it just seemed kind of weird, you know. And she had to deal with her family and her kids and all that kind of stuff. But it just casts such a such a pall over it. It takes all the energy out of it, you know. Um, just across the board, nobody feels like being there. So, you know, watch those movies. Sometimes when there's movies that, you know, they didn't turn out so well, if you do a little bit of digging into the history, you know, you can kind of go, oh, oh, that happened. Oh, that's terrible. Right. Yeah. I'm going to cut a couple of my questions here for time's sake. Sure. But um, as far as uh, I wanted to ask, and I'm, the other guys I think have something like movies they want to ask you about as well. But sure. one more for me anyway, um, I wanted to ask about uh, just to keep it in with the video game theme. Yeah. Mortal Kombat. Did Mortal you work Kombat. on Goro for that one or what? Yes, I did. I was the uh, foam latex supervisor uh, over at ADI for that. I uh, They brought me on specifically to run that because of Super Mario Brothers. Oh, shit. Okay. One, uh, one of the animatronic uh, guys there, Bud McGrew, a friend of mine, um, when when uh, Alec Gillis, who ran the shop, asked him what kind of foam he wanted, he had a slab of the King Koopa skins that I ran for him, and he threw it on the table, and he goes, I want nice. that. He goes, well, do you know who ran that? He goes, yes, I do. So they called me in, and I came over to run that. They didn't have anything for me to do yet, so I basically ended up running a bunch of foam for the original uh, the Santa Claus. Okay. So uh, I had run some hero foam pieces for Tim Allen. I ran the uh, the hero. Was it Donner? Blitzen? I mean, I can't remember. I think it was Donner, the 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 hero uh, reindeer. Ran a hero skin for that, and then went over to Mortal Kombat and and ran those skins, and and it was uh. It was a big project, and Eric Fiedler, our, uh -huh. our engineer. Yes. Oh, uh, Fiedler did that? Yes. Oh, yeah, wow. That was huge. The kinetic I want to get him on this him. eventually. Oh, he's great. He can fucking talk, too. He's great. He's yeah. awesome. He's yeah. awesome. But, yeah, and that was uh, Paul Anderson, and um, didn't get to go to set with that one. I had actually gotten done with my gig, and I moved on. I had a previous commitment, but uh, it was very interesting. It was, that was a very interesting shoot, and he was a neat character. I like Goro a lot. That, uh, to me, my personal opinion here, that's really the only good video game movie we've gotten. I think, I mean, not that it's a Silent Hill. Kind of, I haven't seen that yet, actually. I know Maddie always says that to me. I have not seen it. Maddie's right. <laughs> okay. All right. Anyway, out of the ones that I've seen, right, let's, right, right. we can all agree they're pretty few and far between. Sure. At the very yeah. least. Like, even the, the most recent Assassin's Creed was Sorry. seeming like it was going to be right. good, but apparently it was a piece of shit. Mm. I didn't even go see it. But, uh, had a weakness for the a weakness for the first uh, Resident Evil. That was okay. Not strictly the game. It was fun. That's that's a fun ride. I can watch that. I like movie the again I like the again. game. Yeah. Uh, but as far as I don't know, I've always been a fan of that first Mortal Kombat movie. That was really good. And were you a fan of the game in general whenever you were on there? Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd played it. I didn't completely obsess over it. I was still more of a Mario Brothers guy at the time. <laughs> oh, yeah. I just uh, Mario is a great way to just you know eat up the just eat up your time but yeah that was that was a lot of fun because at the time i know i think double dragon that didn't woo anybody oh that my didn't, God, that that didn't do anybody um 
what was the uh, what was the other one? There was yeah, there was quite a few of them. They just started just started spooling those things out. They were really terrible. Uh, but yeah, I think I'd agree with you on that. That was certainly of, of that spate of films. Definitely, Mortal Kombat stood out amongst them. Were you surprised it was actually? Well, what what was your opinion on the film? It was like kind of a slight thumbs up, or it was okay. It was okay, right? It was just a, it was just okay. It, yeah. It's so weird to kind of con- contextualize that because it wasn't a classic martial arts type movie necessarily there seemed to be more fantasy characters but if you, you really go and you look at like the soy heart films and stuff like that that had preceded yeah. it they yeah. were definitely rife with fantasy characters oh, and more interesting sure. combat and even technically speaking when you look at game of death uh-huh. if you really want to go back and, and contextualize nice. it like that oh he's you know he's cream or was it no was it cream Abdul? Abdul, i think yeah. so yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. you know giant footprint on his, yeah. on his uniform and stuff like that that was that was interesting like what was it like Dalsim, Dalsim, thank the, you. The, like Dalsim, the yoga yeah. master and kind of like <laughs> just this giant lanky character fighting with him. Yeah. So it yeah. it had been there before, but certainly I th- I thought it did well. I don't know that it it necessarily captured my imagination and my passion as much as it could have. Right. Yeah. Just when yeah. I saw Super Mario Brothers as a kid, even when I was a kid, I was like, this is awful. Yeah. I was probably eight or nine when I yeah. saw that movie, and even then, you know, usually when you see movies as a sure. kid, you kind of like everything. But even even that, I was like, no, I can't deal with that. With Mortal Kombat, I liked a lot, um, but then the, se- the sequel was was bad. Mm-hmm. That was mm-hmm. a really mm-hmm. bad movie. Mm-hmm. This is very very bad cinema. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, I'm gonna uh, offer the. Uh... Nobody ever asks a question about Clue, do they? <laughs> you know, Kevin Smith. <laughs> did you work on that? On the original Clue? No, yeah. no, no, no. Just a fan. Okay, Ke- Kevin Smith <laughs> just recorded a. Uh, what you call it? Director's um, commentary. A, yeah, commentary yeah. with the director. You know what I'm uh, talking about? Adrian Line. Yeah. 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 Or Jonathan Line. Or yeah. it's one of Kevin one Smith's of friends that. Yeah, I know. I got guessed, this. It's in my queue at home. <laughs> he guessed the he guessed the director's uh, email correctly. <laughs> the guy fucking responded. That's awesome. That's awesome. And it was like, yeah, I'll record it. So the guy rented a fucking room in Santa Monica or some cool. shit, a recording room to do it right. Because the guy's in the film industry, he knows some shit, sure. and got the guy there, and they recorded an actual clue uh, nice. uh, director's commentary, which nobody was asking for, so he did it himself. Well, now I want to listen to it. I think it was Jonathan Lynn. I'm pretty sure it was Jonathan. <laughs> I think so. And the, and the director is just so insanely British. Yes, yes, just, yes, yes, terribly so. Yes, just like having a cup of tea at 4 p.m. exactly every day on set and shit. He's dipping into a yeah. snuff. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. Oh, well, yeah. well played. Exactly. You know, listen to it. You kind of laugh at how just just how British. Oh, he now is. I gotta listen to it. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, did you guys have any questions about his uh, resume? I mean, he talked about Bad Moon, so that's all I kind of did. I didn't even know you. <laughs> I honestly didn't think we were – I thought we were going to record this at the normal time. I thought I was going to be late, so I was like, ah. Oh. And then I was like, oh, shit, we're doing this later. And then I just brought up Bad Moon because you were talking about the, uh, the kind of – like when Stephen King is like, right. oh, the dog was knew when the boy was going to be home. And I was like, oh, that's cool. You should read this book. Maybe I'll give you – maybe you haven't read it. Because I really enjoy it. And then you're like, oh, I worked on that. And I was like, that's all I want. That's all I need. <laughs> oh, that's I mean, good. All that's right. all I ever need in my life. I was worried you guys yeah. were going to be bored. Like, okay, yeah, we're done. Thanks. What, what kind of – No, I, every podcast we do with, like, any of you guys that come on and talk about it, I could just listen to this shit all day. <laughs> like, this is like I, – I honestly, when I get a DVD or a Blu-ray, I'm like, I could give a shit about that. Or tell me how you did that. 
how you did that effect or this effect because yeah. like i just love it i'm just like that's movie magic to me just like watching creatures completely. come alive and stuff completely but so he, i could listen to people talk about that all day long so yeah but even just on that point just just hearing filmmakers talking about the craft of making a film and the choices they made and you know and just their thought process that to me has always been more so than anything else it's the it's the thought process like <clears throat> studying how Rob Bottin would, would break down and think about an effect and this, this visualization, you know, that he would come through. And I was you know, it's sort of like, you know, little mouths on your body are kind of opening and closing and doing this and doing that. That's your Bottin impression? That's my Bottin impression. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah, it gave me the butt willies in the middle of the night. That's that's on the thing. The uh, yeah, anyway. But, uh, but he was one of those guys, you know, and that, that always appeals to me like, you know, uh, Robert Rodriguez is very much a filmmaker that, it, you know, has caught my imagination. I like the way that he puts the film together, you know, structurally. Yeah. I do like, I do like the, you know, I do like Kevin Smith movies. I like that Kevin Smith is doing his own, his own thing. It, I'm oh, very much interested. Totally. <laughs> you know, I'm very much interested in, in why you wanted to do that. What thoughts, you know, what, what were you sourcing it from and, and how you use those, you know, original in those sources to come up with an original piece. I'm assuming Tusk, sure, or Red State, or or Yoga Hosers, or they may not exactly be my cup of tea. They may not be the kind of film that I would want to make myself. But I appreciate the fact, as a filmmaker, that he says that he wants to do it. Other people fall in line, give him some money, and he goes and makes a movie. He said that yeah. I, I listen to a lot of Kevin Smith podcasts, right? Yeah. And he fucking said that I think for Yoga Hosers, the the, the production company that he gets funding from. He couldn't exactly get the funding for yoga hosers, but they had what what's called a slush fund. Yeah, just a little oh, bit yeah. run that's over. Yeah, and yeah. and that's how yoga hosers was made. Yeah, and they were able to get Johnny Depp in the fucking movie too, so they at least had some selling points. So yeah, um, yeah. Well, it was because it, you know Harley and Johnny, uh, you know Harley and Johnny's daughter had basically had grown up together, yes. and they and they were you know were friends, and then they were they were in Tusk, right? As the colony, they're both, in, yeah, both in Tusk, you yeah. know. And I think it's two two dads working with their daughters. Come on, that's that's, that's pretty it, yeah. bitch, and that's that's yeah. you know, that's pretty awesome. And you know, Joel came along, and Joel did his makeup, so you know, he, he took it very seriously. Yeah. But at the same time, too, whether you know whether you agree whether it's a, a great film or whether it's on par with Cop Out or Jersey Girl or you know how or Chasing Amy, whatever you want to do, there's a guy who says I'm going to make a movie about a guy who turns another guy into a walrus. Yeah, essentially, essentially on a dare. Genius. You know? yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Boom, done. Suck it. I actually kind of like Tusk. I genuinely like yeah. Tusk. I think Yoga Hosers is a bit like, you know, maybe some little girls like this movie. I get it, but not really for me. But Tusk, I thought it was pretty cool. Pretty good movie. Dude, and Michael Parks, you know, I mean, oh, yeah. that guy that guy will legitimize, you know, legitimize any kind of picture. And I guess, did you hear that, that anecdote after Michael Parks passed that? It was while on on Tusk, and he found out how sick that he that he was, mm-hmm. and wow. that basically he was uh, who was the kid the the, the star from the uh, he was also did the Apple commercials. Oh, uh, Justin uh, Long. Long, Justin Long, yes, yeah. Justin Long, thank you. And and I guess that you know uh, Justin Long felt that that Michael wasn't wasn't getting into him and wasn't giving him anything, and he kind of seemed to be surly and sort of off put. And you know, only through the perspective of time did, did Kevin find out that that was the week that he got the phone call that he found out how sick that he was. And so it put Justin off a little bit. And then I guess apparently while while Michael Parks was was you know 
halfway paying attention through a run through of it, I guess Justin ad libbed something and it caught Michael Parks just the right way. And he started laughing and that had changed it. So that was the, that was the thing. That was the tension bubble that needed to happen. I wish I could be more specific. And you, cool. you, you, this was, uh, I know, I know the story. Yeah. This was the on Hollywood Babylon. And this yes. was, you know, the, the tribute yes. to Michael Parks and it got very emotional. I'm just like walking around on the treadmill, bawling my eyes out. <laughs> but I thought that I thought that was a great story, and I think it's it's also the fact too that you know I'm not the only one. There's a lot of people, Michael Parks included, you know, Alanis Morissette, who, whomever, that he's a compelling pitch man. He's a compelling raconteur, and he is a storyteller. He's a writer. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of hard to be in the room with somebody who who can really, you know, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, they really write. They're a creative kind of person. They have that fire and they have that spark. And we're constantly actors and, you know, and, and creative people. You're, you're looking for that muse. You're looking for that, you know, that, that fuel, you know, it's just right. something, give me a project to go on to something to just kind of set me off here or something chunky, you know, right. and they like that. That's, that's a, it's a challenge. It might not land. It may not make a, you know, gazillion dollars, but it's made, you know, the guy, for, and yeah. considering too, it's also a guy who said, I'm not directing anymore. I'm kind of done. If I can't do this hockey picture, I'm going to try and do this hockey picture. And then, you know, that's it. And I'm done. And now all of a sudden he's like, I don't think I'm done yet. Yeah. Yeah. Filming, that's awesome. About to start filming Jane Silent Bob no. reboot. Yeah. I can't yeah. wait to see that, yeah. man. This, yeah. Within three years, I think it's three years. I think it's at least three years. Then, you know, that was the last that I knew that that guy wasn't going to direct any more movies. He'd had the shits of it. And, you know, yeah, why, went, why put up with the criticism and stuff like that? And he was having a lot of fun doing podcasts. And by the way, if you can mock, if you can monetize your podcast and do seven or ten of them, you know, and they work out really well for you and you're having a lot of fun, that's great. We are looking at yeah. that. We're, we're <laughs> diligently checking into that mission <laughs> statement. Yes. Go to our Patreon page. Oh, that's good. Please. <laughs> it's at the end of every one of our episodes. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Stefan, did you have anything uh, in particular? Uh, yeah. What was your experience like working on Blade 2? Blade Two was amazing. Blade yeah, Two, the creature was, stuff in that was awesome. so good. Blade Two was interesting because uh, because of Rose Red, uh, because uh, Steve Johnson and I had come to a, an, an ending of our relationship together, and I had actually quit on Rose Red for him, or I had mm -hmm. quit Rose Red on him. Mm -hmm. He got Blade Two, and uh, let it let it'd be known to him that I was really interested. And then he called me back in and gave me a huge chunk of the Reaper stuff to, to, to do. I got a, I've got a bunch cool. of things about that picture. Oh, uh, but man. the other reason why I did it is because it was Guillermo and because I knew that Guillermo was eventually going to get around to Hellboy. God, and man. that was the whole reason behind going back and doing yes. blade two. I had a lot of fun on blade two, but Steve didn't give a shit. Like I, he, he asked me one day, he was kind of like, like, why did you come back? Cause it didn't end so well between us. So like, well, cause Guillermo's directed and he's going to do Hellboy. And he's like, what's Hellboy? Yeah. <laughs> like Steve, Steve was not a huge, you know, superhero. Steve Johnson. Oh yeah. Steve was the kind of guy that he would get into an artistic disagreement with you about the, the exact color of purple for Spider-Man's cape. And then you'd have to sit there and go, Spider-Man doesn't have a cape. <laughs> Purple, not a part of his idiom. That's Sorry. One, one thing I've noticed about working in this industry now is like a, a large chunk of the people at, at the shops are into horror. Yeah. But not everybody. No. A lot of people are into fantasy shit. Yeah. And that's yeah, why they true. got that's why they got into this stuff. And of course, a lot of people are into superhero shit too. Yeah. So that's what, what brought them in as well. Sure. I think probably like fifty Probably over half are, are horror horror people. Right. 
but there's definitely a large chunk of people that are not horror or they like sci-fi yeah. shit too. A lot of sci-fi yeah. fans. So yeah. it's it's interesting to see, uh, you know, the the different types of personalities even within this subculture. Sure. sure. Yeah. Blade Two was a lot of fun, and I worked on some fun things. But the best stuff is uh, our our mutual acquaintance, our friend Bernie Eicholtz that we work with at the studio. Uh-huh. Bernie got all that priest stuff. So oh, cool. the priest character, when he gets bitten yeah. by one of the reapers, and then they're tired of hearing him, you know, scream, and they chop the top of his head off with a sword, and they yeah. riddle his body with bullets. That's all gags that my friend Bernie built, and it was it was the stuff on the picture. The rest of us were doing good work, but we kind of looked over there in a jealous kind of way, and it's like, and you doing them thing effects? Look at you, man! This is <laughs> like pump his chest full of lead, and then he's still alive, and he's an animatronic head, and you cut the top of the head off. And like yes. you know, the top part of the head, that was a separate radio controlled animatronic thing. So when just the top of the head itself was on the ground, the eye could still move and the brow could move. But also what you didn't see is his, his body with the top of the head removed. That was also animatronic. <laughs> and it was amazing stuff. I mean, it was it was so much fun. That that show was so much fun. I was really happy to have worked on it. Awesome. That's so great. I love that movie. Man, it's a good one. <laughs> Fucking sweet, Joe. <laughs> what about Power Rangers? Right before we head out, some quick about Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. <laughs> I worked on I worked on the first two movies. Please tell me you worked on Ooze. No, 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 no. That was already that was a done deal. Tell we were kind of right we were we rivals. Were, was that Bob McCarran? I think it was Bob McCarran because they were going to actually shoot the picture in Australia. Mm-hmm. So as as a part of that and as a part of the tax incentive, I would imagine at the time you had to use Australian oh, talent. So I they see. gave that character and parsed it out. I was actually working for Rob Berman and his wife Jennifer, and we were working on the uh, the Power Ranger suits and the Power Ranger you know costumes. Oh, cool. Cool. And then, uh, which which was interesting, but you know, because we try to advance the materials and stuff like that, and you know, uh, to, to make these flexible urethane, you know, yeah. spandex vinyl composites, and it was a lot of technical stuff on it. Ended up it having much good. more. Oh, good, thank you. Yeah, I ended up having much more fun on the on the second one. We got to Steve Johnson's company. We got to do the, uh, the little cool. little wizard characters, Larigo yeah. and his wife. Yeah. who were uh, these adorable little people. <laughs> and I had the wife, and I had to make her little hands with little finger extensions so she could hold a cool. little animatronic baby. But the the performer, he had those little person hands. They were so stubby that they, they, they wouldn't move. Oh, wow. <laughs> so as, as, as the effects company, the Turbo, the second one was more fun, actually, to work on. Yeah, it was a, it was a lot more cool. fun. It was a more interesting yeah. character. And they they really dug the work that we did for it. As a matter of fact, we did like three episodes of the actual Power Rangers uh, series. Oh, from yeah. That uh, was from really? Savon. Yeah, they yeah, actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. They actually gave some work to the American companies? Did. Oh. Uh, we did a bit where when the Power Rangers, uh, I, I can't remember where, what the device was, but they were out of the picture. And then it was a group of alien Power Power Rangers oh, that that took over. Yeah. They had weird shaped heads and stuff watching. like that. Those are the I sculpted. I sculpted a couple of those and and, and you know put a couple of those guys together. That Ooh. movie came out at a weird time for me because it was like I had already gone through Transformers and mm-hmm. Ghostbusters and Ninja Turtles for a long time. That was right. a run of my childhood. X Men, and then Power Rangers was like the very last, the last vestige of the right. shit I was into. Yeah before i hit my teenage years or yeah. whatever yeah. i don't even know like maybe a little bit before that but so the movie came out i remember really liking the movie yeah. as a kid yeah the first one and then kind of like right after the movie came out it was like 
ooh, maybe I shouldn't be talking about this in school anymore. <laughs> yeah. you know, that's that's kind of how it was. Exactly. I, I got real self-conscious. So sure. I, I had like this like block in my brain right. for the longest time. And, like, like don't even think about it. Don't even talk about it, right. uh, about this whole series. But for you, for you as a grown-ass man working yeah. on this shit, was it like, this is some weird Japanese stuff or was, yeah. it, was it fun? I'd already, I'd already known about it. I can't forgive my ignorance i can't remember the name of it but the the power rangers as such where it was actually based on an older super sentai super sentai yeah super and, sentai. Super sentai. and how i know about <laughs> it is not from from seeing super sentai but they had repackaged it and put it on a late night tv show friday and saturday night called oh. uh, uh uh night flight uh-huh right cool. And Night Flight would show these little animated shorts and cartoons and stuff like yeah. that. You know, eventually it, it turned into the thing that was hosted by Gilbert Gottfried and Ron DeShear up yeah. all night. Uh-huh. But ostensibly it was a video show. And they had the repackaged show on there and it was like the five ninjas of death or something like that. But it was played yeah. as comedy, okay. you know. Oh. And, and so that's how I first got to know those characters. And I we, we would watch and they replay it at, like every other Friday night or whatever. And they would just dub in their own dialogue, put them in with these ridiculous, you know, like Japanese, you know, kaiju type monsters. But it was a Super Sentai that wasn't the, the run that, that it was Saban the run, but with with different voices that into it. Saban took. It was the same run wow. that, that Saban took. So wow, when I saw that funny. come out later on, I was like, I just saw it and I didn't hear any any just of the dialogue what it. it was. Right? So I go, oh, yeah, I remember watching kids. this. Yeah. And I turned it on. I'm like, this is not what I saw. Yeah. This is not. Right. I actually just this past week watched the first three episodes of that Did original it? one nice. that I watched as a kid with the Japanese version. Nice. Holy shit, is it different? Have you ever seen the live action uh, Japanese Spider Man show from the no, 70s? No, but it's the same company. You know that? Oh, yeah. Same yeah. exact company. The guy, Je- that made, the guy that made Kamen Rider, are, are you pretty familiar with uh, Rider, yeah. with uh, Tokusatsu stuff yeah. in general? Okay, yeah. Um, so that that same guy just thought of Sentai. Yeah. The, yeah. Like, a few years, a few years That's later. That's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy stuff. Yeah. But remember, I, like, I was originally into the Shogun Warriors. Like those were huge. They like back big, in the seventies, uh, the big line, action. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Ray Dean and Mazinger Z. Uh-huh. And yeah. Those were those were my favorites. Followed quickly by the Micronauts, uh-huh. uh, Baron yeah. Carza and a Croyer and Force Commander. I love that stuff. It was a Hasbro great set of toys. toys. Hasbro toys. Yeah. <laughs> or no, no, I think it was Marks. Uh, it was Marks. Okay, I think Hasbro sure it was Marks. Out of, uh, Could very well be that line didn't stay around for too long. Um, Crossover comic right now, though I believe there was a Micronauts Transformers. Yeah, it's uh, called Revolution. This past that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, that's the that was the plan at one point with the Transformers and with all this stuff is to try and have this one you know universe Uh and try to tie it all together. I hope it works out for you. I think Universal is having problems with that. Nobody can fucking pull this shit off, man. Oh my DC's god. DC's barely I, can you even say they're holding it together? Well, well DC the, the nice thing about DC and Warner Brothers in particular is deep pockets and they make it rain. Yeah. I will just keep yeah. making it rain with money yeah. until these problems are solved and you go <laughs> away. Because also, they, they had all <laughs> one roof too. Yeah. Like Marvel yeah. spread the fuck out, but yeah. at least DC's under WB. That's it. Absolutely. So yeah. at least they have that, but still they're having a hard time it seems. Well, yeah, I mean cuz yeah. you know between between Spider-Man at Sony, you know, between everything else that's Marvel Studios, and then between the X-Men stuff and the Fantastic Four at Fox. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. it's all over the place. It's crazy. But at the same time, Marvel's benefiting because, I mean, look look at Deadpool and Logan. 
That's true. That's you know, true. But also, you know, Sony is fucking benefiting because by listening to Kevin Feige yeah, and allowing yeah, him to yeah. piggyback, you know, into Civil War, it saved your franchise. You oh, don't have to waste, yes. you know, spinning your wheels and the law. I think we're going to do a Sinister Six spinoff. Great. You know, there's problems with your character fundamentally, right? Like it's it's not working, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, we didn't like Toby Maguire, so now it's five minutes later, so we're gonna switch to Andrew Andrew Garfield, and it's like yeah. uh, there were some things that he did that were fine. He's not my Peter Parker. Yeah, um, I had a lot of problems with those two pictures, mostly the second one, and something about seeing Jamie Fox with a comb over. I, I yeah, that's what, what I said. It was like the Nutty fuck. Professor or something. Like it was, it was really like, that was bad. Really, really, they should have had really. him play all the villains in the movie. If that yeah, was I the would, case, it should have been like the clumps. It should have oh exactly. been exactly. I'm the shocker. Terrible from uh, internet reception. Yeah. So I think my 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 expectations were pretty low. Sure. Well, uh, so when I actually did see it, I don't know. I just didn't hate it as much as everybody. Yeah. It, it wasn't great. I liked, I liked, the, I liked the rhino. Role. That. Oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, one of the finest actors of our time, yeah. Paul Giamatti. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Playing a two-dimensional role. Oh, yeah. I liked yeah. the suit. I like how they industrialized that idea a little I, bit. Just just for sake of that fight scene, if anything. You know, when, when you when it, when you attenuate it and you pull it out to its nth degree, that's what the rhino suit always was. The rhino yeah. suit was a military you know, great yeah. type of piece of hardware that yeah. was bonded to an ex-con and sort of and it went crazy. So <laughs> You know, just deconstructed it's gold, gold, baby. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> I am walking around in big suits. You know, like, oh, oh this is weird. And you see Paul Giamatti, where has he been? Yeah. What's, since then? That's unfortunate. Well, <laughs> Same with Jamie Fox. Nobody Jamie Fox, the Amazing Spider Man Part 2 just killed two Come good on, actors' careers. <laughs> Wait a minute. Was he, uh, was John Dies at the End? Was that after? Uh, that was that was after yeah oh yeah. thank god my memory no alzheimer's yet yeah Giamatti <laughs> was in a fucking uh john adams at hbo that's series. true that, that was, was good really that was good. really good yeah, yeah he's bro. really good good performer and pick have, baba and pick more of course <laughs> i got one more question one last yes, sir. One before we leave gi joe retaliation mm. uh, what was what was that experience like Wow. Uh, G.I. Joe Retaliation. I won't go into the semantics of it because uh, I no longer work for that company and it was a little uh -huh. bit touchy. But in a very short period of time, we had to move our entire shop down to down to New Orleans uh, wow. to facilitate the production there. You know, our studios weren't set up there. So at the time we had to find a suitable uh, location for our facilities, bring people down, get all those people put up. And then very quickly, I was responsible for having to outfit or excuse me, outfit this facility in order to do makeup effects in it. Uh, we had to uh, rent an air conditioning unit, a giant portable air conditioning unit, because Jeez. it was we weren't we weren't used to 98, 99, 100 yeah. percent humidity. Yeah. Uh, materials it was really hard to get pieces done it was insane yeah. it was trying to coordinate between getting life casts and dental impressions done for us uh, by Neil Gorton over in London and then just because of the nature of the unpredictability of the weather down there I had to facilitate a lot of the the processing of appliances by sending that stuff back to LA in our in our temperature oh, wow. controlled environment so logistically it was it was all over the board it was a yeah. lot you know a lot yeah. going on um, there was a lot of communication uh, gaps and stuff like that. The production came together very, very quickly. Yeah. On the other hand, it was very neat meeting uh, meeting Punisher Ray Stevenson. Oh shit! Uh, yeah. Wolfpack, right? Uh, 
Uh-huh. Right? Oh, yeah. He's awesome. He's fucking He's amazing. Awesome. You know, he was really cool. <laughs> I was outside smoking a cigarette with him, and he he was a lot of fun. We did we did the tattoos for him as uh, Firefly cool. for his little subcutaneous uh, control pads. We worked on you know like most of the cast. Unfortunately, I did not get a chance to meet uh, to meet Bruce Willis, especially since you know growing up on the original twelve inch GI Joe, and that's who he's yeah. supposed to play. Yeah. That would have been cool. Yeah. Dwayne Johnson is fucking amazing. Dwayne's cousin is amazing. Dwayne's uh, cousin is a, is a photo double. double stand-in. Yeah, he's he is uh, awesome and almost as huge as his cousin. He's pretty yeah. fucking big. And then you know he's like, "Wow, you're really big." And then Dwayne stands next to him. And you're like, "You're not as big as him." Wow. <laughs> and Jonathan, awesome. Jonathan Price was wonderful, yeah. and uh, Byung, who played uh, Storm Shadow, I did a lot yeah. of work with him. Cool. Um, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just it was a production that had to come together very, yeah. very quickly, and we got yeah. to shoot at NASA. Oh, oh nice. wow, that's that cool. was dope. Yeah. Going down there and shooting in the NASA facility. Cool. Yeah, really, yeah. I li- I like those movies. I, like for for the the nostalgic, you know, like sure aspects of them. Snake Eyes armor and retaliation mm. is fucking amazing. Yeah, for um, Na- uh, sorry, um, I forgot his name now. Uh, Hammerhead Studios. He he does yeah. all the stuff for. Uh, he did like the Black Panther helmet. Oh, cool. Jose Fernandez. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Jose's amazing. Yeah, yeah Ironhead. Yes, yeah, I yeah. like aspects of those. I really love GI Joe. I love the GI Joe lore and uh, mythology. I love the Marvel okay. comics, and yeah, those were fun. Really, that's really cool to hear. I mean, it's it's like it's uh, from the end result. It's obvious that there are issues, seemingly, yeah. but. Um, but I mean, those, I even took the, have a good place in my heart. I took the GI Joe action team uh, insignia and and blew that up and basically cool. put that that was on every place inside the studio. Fuck yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. Yeah, this is original. <laughs> that's awesome. That's really cool. So cool. Cool, Joe. I think that's gonna do it, man. Awesome. Thank you, gentlemen. This was amazing. Yeah, I was really nervous you. and uh, really awesome. This was cool. This has been definitely a lot of fun, man. Yeah. You need to come back on. <laughs> okay. Yeah, for sure. Thanks, man. It was really, it was really nice meeting you, sort of, kind of. <laughs> yeah. Kind of ish. Ish. All right, guys. Well, we'll check you later. Yeah. Later. This is Stefan from the Superhouse Podcast. Be sure to check us out on Patreon, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and any other godforsaken social media outlet that we that we should be floating on we are basically on all social media <laughs> yeah, all social media mainly facebook and twitter and patreon check out the links in the description we have uh, a lot of uh cool goals uh set up on our patreon like if you donate a dollar you'll be able to uh give us a topic for us to talk about and that's we'll talk dope. about for maybe an hour or more who knows yeah. how long it'll take and that's pretty tight <laughs> That's the coolest thing. <laughs> Wait, we're on the internet? That's pretty good. And we can make money. What? <laughs> if you donate $1,000, you get full frontal nudes. We haven't set that up, but it's a possibility. If you give us a grant, who knows what will happen. Check us out. I'll do that. <laughs> I'll do that. <laughs> you get to go on a date with one of us for $10,000. <laughs> but you pay for everything. <laughs> you get to have your way with Maddie for $20,000. For $30,000, we'll help you hide a body. Check out our Patreon. <laughs> Superhouse Gigolo Project 2017. <laughs> Links in the description. <laughs>